What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Chad and John, the Two Man Power Trip. That's uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. The two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by Outer Limits Hot Sauce. Head on over to OuterLimitsHotSauce.com and find out all about a New Jersey-based father and son company that's bringing to you one of the greatest and most unique hot sauce flavors and company overall that you're ever going to find. Again, it's OuterLimitsHotSauce.com and check them out on Instagram and Twitter at Outer Limits Hot Sauce. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime, John Paz and John. You could hear it off the top. You heard the promo. Our guest on the show today is the man who basically put ECW on the map, and that is the man known as the franchise of ECW, Shane Douglas, joined the program for an over two-hour interview, which we like to call the show an epic And I know you and I, we can throw this back and forth as much as we want, and we can preview what you're about to hear, but we're going to keep it short and sweet because, John, 
there's nothing that we're going to say that Shane Douglas didn't cover. And if you're a fan of Shane Douglas and you're a follower of his career, you're in store for possibly one of the greatest interviews I think he's ever done. And I am not just saying that because it's on the two-man power trip of wrestling. But, John, quickly, just give me your thoughts on what it means to have Shane Douglas on our show and, of course, continue our epic series with a guy like Shane Douglas and what that means to us. But also, before you throw it to the interview, hit him with a little two-man power trip of wrestling business. Tell him a little bit more about Outer Limits Hot Sauce and get it on over to possibly one of our best interviews we've ever done with the franchise, Shane Douglas. What an honor it was to get the franchise on the show, and I'm going to keep this one short and sweet because we got a tremendously great, long, epic interview today with the franchise, Shane Douglas, and I absolutely loved every second of it, and so will you. We go through his whole career, get the career retrospective, WCW, WWF, ECW, and everything in between. We talk about the click. We talk about Paul Heyman. We talk about Everything there is to know about the franchise, including how he got that nickname, the Triple Threat, Bam Bam Bigelow, Terry Funk, and so many other great topics. It was such an, like I said before, such an honor to get him on. I just absolutely love this interview. And to be able to put this in our epic series is unbelievable. And Chad, like I said to you off air, this was uh, one of those guys that I was just dying to get on for a long time. And I just absolutely was so thrilled to be able to talk to him, especially for as long as we did. And we thank the franchise for that. So, Chad, you know, this was one of my favorites and uh, another one for the books. Today's episode is brought to you by Outer Limits Hot Sauce. They have delicious all-natural hot sauces made with fresh peppers and all other top-quality ingredients. They are New Jersey-based, father-and-son-owned. Flavors include habanero, cilantro, jalapeno lime and jalapeno hemp seed so you can find them online at outerlimitshotsauce.com also on twitter instagram and facebook one more time that is outerlimitshotsauce.com now for some tmpt business like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also subscribe to us on iTunes, where you can check out the feed for prior great episodes with the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, the Legend Harley Race, Lariat Stan Hansen, Jerry Jarrett, Jeff Jarrett, and so many more. Also, check out the website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. You could also check us out on the I-95 Sports Network. Also, we are now a part of the Top Rope Press Radio Network. So visit us at topropepress.com. Now, for more information on booking Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, a.k.a. Kevin Fertig, please email us at bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. That is bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. Also, if you want to see Kevin Thorne's Pro Wrestling Tea Store, you can check that out and become a member of the Bike Club. 
And now, without any further ado, the former WCW US Champion, the former WWF Intercontinental Champion, the former WCW Two-Time Tag Team Champion, the former NWA Champion, the former four-time ECW World Heavyweight Champion. He is the creator of the Triple Threat and the greatest wrestler in the history of ECW. He is the franchise, Shane Douglas, please enjoy. No introduction. We've uh, we've been dying to get him on. We've talked about him at length with many many guests, and of course he is an ECW original, and you know him by one name, and that is the franchise. And he is Shane Douglas. And thank you so much for joining the two man power trip of wrestling. Oh, I'm, I'm glad we could finally uh, get hooked up. You, know, you said we've been playing contact for quite a while to get this done. I'm just happy to get it done today. So good to be here. Well, let me tell you something. It's all good things always end up coming together. And, of course, when we have the franchise ready to go on our show, we know we're in for quite, quite, quite the fun trip. But, Shane, I want to just kind of start with kind of unfortunate and sad news. And kind of, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword because we read such a touching thing that you had to write about the unfortunate passing about Axel Rotten. And as unfortunate is that we lost Axel, what you had to write about him was so nice. And you kind of brought to light the fact that, yes, we remember Axel Rotten for the Taipei Deathmatch and the glass taped to his fist. But at the end of the day, sometimes it's overlooked the performer that Axel actually was. And I was really impressed with how you put it to words. How was that, bringing those thoughts to, you know, pen to paper or fingers to, to keyboard and reflecting on Axel's life and career? Well, you know, Axel was first and foremost a friend and a colleague and one that I respected uh, as a worker in the ring. He was one of the guys that I knew. Like if I saw my name on the cards tonight, first sacks of rotten, I knew I had a, a a hell of a match on my hand, but it was going to be a hell of a good match. Um, you know that I actually put more than uphold his end of the uh, bargain in, in a good wrestling match. Uh, and you know, so often it's easy for us to digress. We all want to say, oh, that, you know, the guy deserved what he got, or whatever else. And, you know, there, there's some validity to that. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we're each responsible for ourselves, or at least that's the way the world used to operate. I'm not so sure anymore today. But, uh, you know, Axel, you know, I, I look at it from the perspective of having been through that. Axel Rotten had worked to overcome his demons. He had, he'd been through rehab how many times. If the guy didn't care, he wouldn't even do that. Uh, I can assure you that when you're addicted to something, you're not having fun. It's not like you're out having a big old party and it's great to keep on using. It's you know, it's it's a real heavy uh, burden to monkey on your back, you know, use another phrase. Uh so the fact that he that Axel had so many times worked to try to overcome that tells me that he wanted to get well. Uh that that's the inherent nature of that of that disease is it you know, it, it's just omnipresent, it never goes away, it tries to sneak up on you and it's a cunning foe. Uh, that will sit there and tell you, hey, you've been clean for six months. Come on, you can take one. Uh, and then as soon as you take the one, you're right back on the uh, off the wagon. So uh, I look at it from the perspective of the overall picture. Axel had tried for years to get clean, 
and uh, kept failing, uh, you know, which is very, very rote uh, to uh, uh, to that disease. I mean, who, who have you heard that gone out and got detox the first time or rehab the first time and succeeded? It's, it's extraordinarily rare. Um, so I look at it from that standpoint. And, and for me, I want to look back at it and, and rather than look at, you know, any of us as, as the, le- the, the least common denominator, what's the least worst thing we can say about Axel, and instead go back and look and say that he entertained a hell of a lot of people for a good long time, uh, and he did that with his body. Uh, you know, so, uh, like I said in, in what I wrote, uh, it came straight from the heart. Axel, all Axel ever wanted was to be a professional wrestler and entertain people, and I think in that uh, in that context, Axel's life was a success. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and you've been very open with your past uh, transgressions and some of the things that you had to go through personally with some uh, substance abuse. But, you know, the thing that I find really cool, and you've said this as well in the past, is having to do with the, the collection of folks that were in ECW. When you throw Axel Rotten into that discussion of the fact that you had the guys that, you know, Vince McMahon didn't want to, you know, push, saying either they're too small or they're too this or too that or Eric yeah. Bischoff – couldn't use a guy, you know, like a Sabu because maybe he didn't uh, translate well to that Turner audience. But you look at a guy like Axel Rotten, then you look at ECW at the time, right place, right time, perfect fit. And to, when you look at him, do you kind of think he exemplifies what ECW was when it came to the performer? No question about it. I mean, you know, again, what we were doing in ECW was, you know, the, the very first thing that you had to do was overcome your fear of getting hurt. Uh, you know, ECW was extraordinarily physical, and you know you can see that obviously in the tapes. Um, you know, Axel did that above and beyond. You know, the Axels, the, uh, uh, the, the New Jacks, the uh, Sandman, Terry Funks, the Sappers. I mean, those guys went out and really gave ECW its flavor. You know, that this is what ECW was going to be, and clearly in watching those, you can see that this was something different than Saturday morning wrestling. Or, or even Saturday evening TBS wrestling. It was uh, it was something vastly different, and that started with the physicality of it. And, and to do that, there's no there's no uh, smoke and mirrors, and there's no uh, trickery to what you're seeing. The guys are beating the hell out of each other. And, and uh, yes, Axel certainly personified what ECW is about and helped give it its flavor. Yeah, and you know, in ECW, of course, it seems like every couple of years. ECW seems to pop right back up on the radar of the wrestling fan, the wrestling public, whether it is, you know, a reunion show, and we've seen some of those, or we've seen, like, with Tommy Dreamer's House of Hardcore, we saw with Your Extreme Rising, we saw all these different outlets for ECW to live on, and now it's, of course, living on on the WWE Network. As the WWE Network is growing, they add more ECW, and I think that's somewhat of coincidence because of the fact ECW has been so sought after by fans and trying to find those early episodes, and of course you were there, what do you think about the WWE Network model and being something that all that old footage from all these different companies is now making its way into the fingertips of the average fan, and they can pull up Shane Douglas's ECW debut in an amazing in-ring promo with uh, Paul Lee and Todd Gordon. We can go look at that right now, but... As a performer, and you look at that model, what's your take on the WWE Network and how the performer may not be getting some of the, uh, you know, some of the, the benefits that they should from a model such as the WWE Network? 
Well, I know there's, so there's, there's two com- two ends of this compendium. The, the one end is the amazement at the technology that, you know, when I was a kid, black and white television with rabbit ears and, you know, standing with one foot in the air and, you know, moving around to try to get the right signal uh, to where now my son can pull up on his uh, smartphone, you know, WWE content or uh, historical content or his favorite music video or some uh, video uh, game. You know, to me, it's astounding, the technology. Uh, you know, and, and I think the, the positive of that is it's made all of us uh, present, uh, you know, present and accounted for to young kids. I, I can't tell you in the last couple of years how, how many eight, nine, ten-year-old kids are talking to me and say, hey, I just, you know, you're my favorite wrestler. I've seen you on, on, on the network or on YouTube or something. So all these new social medias and technologies like the network uh, have, have kept us current. You know, and brought us back uh, at a time long past our age would allow. But that's the amazing part of it. Now, the, the other side of that compendium is that you have, you know, somebody making an awful lot of money off of uh, footage that we all had worked and, and tore our bodies to pieces to, 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 to film and shoot originally. Uh, nobody in, in 1982, 92 even 2002, could have conceived of the incredible technologies that are existing and, and coming into the market every day, and that's only going to speed up. So, you know, it, it, it's hard for you to sign away your rights when you say, uh, okay, Ian, I just filmed you doing this uh, wrestling match today, and John, now we're going to take this, and you sign away, and says, we can use this however we want in the future, and, you know, it's Nobody could possibly conceive of that. I mean, that was like Star Wars or Star Trek back in those days. Uh, so I think that if nothing else, there is because the amount of money that's being made. Uh, I feel strongly that it's you know it's the guy that played Eddie Munster in the Munsters back in 1964, 65, 66, uh, or leave it to Beaver. Still get residual checks. You know, I think that. Uh, you know, that clearly we should be getting the same, at least similar uh, uh, feedback and, and benefit. And we're not getting that. You know, and so that's why I have a, a big difference with Vince McMahon. I think the technology is astounding. And I think he's done, like he's always done, move wrestling into areas that nobody could have ever conceived of. Uh, but again, as always in the past, Vince benefits from it. Uh, the wrestlers that are literally dying uh, to make that footage. Uh, 196, I think it is, I'm counting the personal friends of mine today. Um, you know, and I can already hear the people see my other events. I'm not saying that Vince McMahon did it, but talking about Axel a second ago, uh, do you think that Axel came into the business as a drug addict, or do you think that all those bangings and Taipei death matches forced him to self-medicate to try to numb some of that pain? Uh, so if we're going to do that, then clearly we should get be some beneficiary of it. And I look at it a step further than that now, you know, John, because for me, uh, I've got two sons, 10 and 14 years old. And by my thinking, if anybody on the planet is going to benefit from what I broke my body up to do, it should be two kids named Connor and Gabe, nobody else. Uh, and now does that say that Vince makes a million dollars selling Shane Douglas merchandise or footage? But I should get 999000 of it? Absolutely not. But aren't I worth 1000 of it? 2000 10000 some Some percentage of that should be coming to me and my kids. And, 
Saturday there's a difference of opinion with Vince on that, and uh, my understanding is there's a lawsuit going to be fought over very soon. So we'll be very interested to see how that lawsuit turns out. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, and it's something that I think is just growing, and it's it's been talked about basically since the network model came about, and CM Punk was the first person to really – you know, just kind of be like, you know, well, what are we talking about here in terms of uh, revenue? Right. We're losing pay-per-view. And then when we had Kevin Thorne on, and, you know, no, you know, of course, with all disclosure, Kevin Thorne is a great friend of us, but, you know, he made a great point that I think he was unfairly criticized for in saying that just because maybe a couple iterations of his characters didn't get the long-lasting uh, time, maybe they should have on television that, oh, well, he should, why should he be asking for royalties? But... He made a great point, and this is what I'd love to hear from you because I know you've been on some bigger, you know, quote, bigger shows than, than Thorne was at the network host, and that is the fact that when you guys signed those deals back in the day, okay, we're talking the 90s deals, late 90s, late 80s, however you want to look at it, there was a different market for merchandise. There was VHS. Then it moved into DVD. There was also pay-per-view buy rates. Then there's other merchandise sales. As the network moves forward, there's no longer a need for DVD. There's no longer a need for VHS or Blu-ray or any of that stuff. Is that what right. needs to be addressed? Is it the evolving media and how they're going to compensate based on how media – maybe the network is irrelevant in five years. We, ne we don't know. But is that what they need sure. to address out of all this? Oh, no, no question about it. If I were sitting right now, this, this, this uh, show that we're reporting, uh, down the road, Somebody could take this and, you know, God knows what new technologies are going to be coming. I mean, you know, I'm astounded at what I see now. Like, the other day my son pulled up something, you know, I asked him a question, and three seconds later he had the answer, pulled it up on his phone. Now, that would have taken me a Saturday afternoon at the library, whenever I was his age, to find. Uh, so it's astounding, the technology. And technology, it wants, you know, I've read someplace one time that uh, it takes – technology half as much time to double. So if it takes a thousand years to double the first time, it's 500, then 250, 125, and so on. Uh, now, if that's the case, and there's some validity to that, then you, me, and John, nobody on the planet right now could even begin to envision where 10 or 20 years from now this technology is going to be. And, uh, you know, if you and, and John are doing this show and taking the time to create this product, Shouldn't you garner some benefit from this product uh, for some technology that 20 years ago you couldn't possibly conceive of uh, or know of? And uh, it, it clearly needs to be addressed. It's, it's clearly a part of the equation. But, you know, when I was wrestling, you, you said like DVDs and all that, and pay-per-views. So a lot of my career, I was I, I preceded the pay-per-view era. That, that started during my career, and uh, for the most part, it was selling eight by tens and possibly T-shirts. You know, at a show to however many hundreds or thousands of fans that were there. So now you're talking about a worldwide audience of 7 billion people that can literally get on the smartphone someplace or a computer and download uh, some video content on an OTT network. Uh, OTT, I don't even know what the letters stand for. I just, you know, I've seen a lot of documents and stuff. So, I mean, how could I conceive, possibly conceive of that when I was much younger and much dumber than I am now, not that I'm a razor-sharp fool now, but, uh, hmm. you know, you look at that and you say that, you know, clearly this has gone leaps and bounds beyond what any wrestler could have conceived of or, or any human being at that time. You know, the idea of the iPod when it was first uh, introduced 
was that people scoffed at him. They thought Jobs was an idiot. Like, he's, 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 he's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And yet he changed humankind with that. So, you know, we're, again, we're, what's the next Steve Jobs going to conceive of and create in 20 years? Now, uh, I'll, that said, I'll, I'll follow up with that. I believe that Vince McMahon, because he does own those libraries, and he has taken the risk on as a businessman to build the network and everything else, Vince should uh, profit from that and probably profit the lion's share of it. But, again, you know, I can't just go out on a street corner and start selling, you know, uh, copies of this show or, you know, copies of the WWE pay-per-view or whatever uh, without getting slapped with the cease and desist immediately. Uh, clearly, in using somebody's face and likeness and voice and their skill, let's not forget their skill in this sport, uh, to benefit, profit from financially, uh, obviously there should be some some sort of, uh, of uh, formula to come up with what is a fair price for that. Um, I don't know. I'm a, that, that's another argument for another day. But no question in my mind that I believe that anybody's footage that's used on that network or in any way to make money uh, should, should profit to some degree from that. Absolutely. And it's funny when you look at the, the network in itself and you think of all those popular things that they put on there. One of the most popular things, of course, is ECW and their extensive ECW library. And you can't really mention ECW without naming its most popular and, quite frankly, the best star that they ever had, and that's you, the franchise, Shane Douglas, four-time world champion, everything else. But one thing i got to ask about the franchises, how did that nickname actually come about with you? Because, you know, it's so fitting and goes so perfectly with your character. Well, it, it, you know, it's it, it stuck, thank God, after all these years. Uh, when I first went to ECW, a little footnote that very few people remember, or should have reason to remember. When Eddie Gilbert uh, had called me to ECW, he had uh, first my first name in ECW was the fabulous one, Shane Douglas. Like I retake back to Memphis days for Eddie. And uh, I went to the ring with the uh, song, Are You Gonna Go My Way by Lenny Kravitz. And uh, Paul, and, and I think there would have been something to that character. He part of the scene, some incarnation of the franchise character at that time. But, you know, the name was so perfect and where it came from at the time uh, the NFL had just started naming uh, each team sort of naming the franchise player uh, who is their franchise key player and since Paul knew he was going to be building the company around Shane Douglas' character uh, that he that's where the uh, franchise character came from and uh, the name and it stuck uh, Paul only had ever given me one direction on the franchise character. And as soon as he said it, the character coalesced in my head. Uh, he said, uh, you're the captain of the football team that steals everybody's girlfriend and screws them and then leaves them at the dance. And, uh, you know, so I, I had a really good head start with what Paul had told me with this character. And, uh, you know, over the next several years, you know, in and out of angles with some pretty phenomenal talent, you know, Terry Funk, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, Pitbull number two, uh, uh, Taz, Sabu. We had some amazing matches, Raven, and, and, and each of those angles, each of those storylines created another parameter for the franchise character. So now after all these years, the franchise character has coalesced to what he's become today uh, or was it, you know, back in his peak. That, uh, I keep hearing like a feedback there. You guys getting that too? 
No, it's okay. It's okay. I didn't, okay. I didn't know. Anyway, uh, you know, so what that character became at its peak uh, was the sum result of all those angles and, and you know, that, that one line of direction that Paul would give me on the character and then, you know, me fleshing the character out. It was a lot of fun. It was a great character. Uh, and, and timely at that time. You know, you go back to 93, 94, when the NFL started naming franchise players, it made perfect sense. Even casual fans had a pretty good idea what a franchise player meant uh, because of the NFL, and it was uh, it worked. And it was something, as hard as it is to do something new in wrestling, it was something new in wrestling. And so I... I was the fortunate beneficiary of being able to play that character. Definitely, definitely. And the great thing about, you know, you and ECW is you can kind of go back and just look at some epic promos and some landmark things that you did in that company, you know, to cement yourself as the franchise. And one of the most famous ones, obviously, that's out there is the awesome, awesome promo when you're, you're the NWA champion after you win the NWA tournament. And you, you throw the belt down, and you know Ricky Steamboat, and they can all kiss my ass. You just kind of go through what what was going on that day with yourself and with Paul and the NWA, and you kind of you know christening the, the NWA title, the ECW Heavyweight Championship. Yeah, well, you know, to, to go to that day, you have to go a little bit earlier into that week. Uh, uh, Paul Hammond had called me and told me that he had an idea, uh, and what I loved about Paul's uh, Paul's booking was Paul never came to you and said, okay, Shane, this is what you're going to do, or this is what we have for you. It was always more, Shane, I've got an idea. Uh, if we go left, we can do this, this, and this, and this is the good and bad of it. If we go right, but we can do this and this and this, and this is the good and bad of that. And he'd let you decide what you felt most comfortable with. At least that was how he worked with me, and I, and I really enjoyed that because it gave me latitude uh, of how I could in my head envision the character. So earlier in that week, Baldwin said he had an idea about the possibility of the belt throwdown and uh, gave me the, the positives and the negatives of, of each, throwing it down and not throwing it down. Uh, and the whole week, I wrestled with the idea. It goes back and forth, back and forth. Didn't have any idea what I was going to do until uh, Wednesday of that week. My, my view changed uh, a bit, but not, not in concrete. Uh, Mike Tanay had called me at the time. He had a uh, syndicated national radio, nationally syndicated radio program, and he called and asked if I listened to a show the night before. I think it was on Wednesday tonight. It was Thursday, and I said I hadn't. He said well, you should go back and listen to the archives. Your name came up quite often, so I did. I went back and listened to the archives, and it was uh, uh, oh, his name's so sorry. It's Corluz, Dennis Corluzzo. Uh, was his guest, and Dennis uh, was on the show, and uh, at this time, keep in mind, I'll preface by telling you that, you know, ECW, although it was beginning to rule, we were still making about 75% of our money on independent shows. So that was still a main staple of my my income. And uh, Dennis Caluso was on that show and said, look, if anybody out there thinking about booking Shane Douglas, I wouldn't if I were you because Shane Douglas will take your money and he'll no-show you. Now, I had never, at that point in my career, never no-shown uh, a show in my career. Uh, I, to date, I've missed one shot uh, in 37 years. Um, 
And uh, so when I heard that, I couldn't understand why, you know, if, if they're thinking about putting his belt on me on Saturday, why he would possibly say that unless it was to try to control me so that, you know, I'd have to do whatever they said to do or else they could starve me or whatever else. And, uh, you know, anybody that knows me knows that, you know, that, that won't go very far with me. And uh, so that day at the building, I still had, you know, resolved in my head for sure what I was going to do. But uh, that Saturday, I got to the UCW right about 1 o'clock, which was the normal for a TV day. And as soon as I walked into the building, Dennis, this guy came walking up. I had no idea who he was because I had never met Dennis Cruz. I'd only heard his name. And he comes running up to me, and he shoves this piece of this document in my face. And he says, here, you need to sign this. And I looked at it, and I see it's a contract. And I said, what is it? And he said, uh, I'm Dennis Corluzzo, and uh, this is your NWA contract. You have to sign it right now. And I said, well, Dennis, uh, I don't sign any contracts until my attorney reads them, first of all. And, uh, and I said, well, I'll take it, and I'll get it to my attorney. So he reads it, give me okay, I'll sign it and get it back to you. And uh, the rest of the day, he kept following me around like a dingleberry, that entire show. <laughs> at one point, and I'm not making this up, at one point I was in the bathroom stall doing my number two business. And I walked out of the stall to wash my hands, and he was standing there and shoved that. He was waiting for me outside the stall and, and shoved that contract in my face again and punched him in the face. I was so angry because I had been as polite as I could be. And I went to Paul and I said, Paul, if you want this thing to fall to pieces, you better get him away from me because he's driving me nuts. And look, look to, to be fair and honest, I wouldn't sign a contract if God handed it to me without my attorney reading it first. So I wasn't signing that contract one way or the other, and I certainly couldn't sign it. Because I, I did read over it, it made me an exclusive NWA talent. I couldn't sign that. And even if my attorney said this is a great contract, sign it. If we were going to go ahead with the belt throwdown later that night, I couldn't possibly sign that contract. So I did everything I could to keep him at bay, and he kept following me around, following me around. So I finally told Paul, and Paul did his best to keep him away from me, but he still, you know, you know, he was he was always within eight or ten feet of me the whole day. And uh, so we went out that night. The building was excruciatingly hot. You know, 115, 120 degrees, uh, camp, television lights, thick crowd, long night, uh, August, um, I believe August or September, a very, very warm night in the ECW arena. And I had to work three times and not three, you know, three, four minute matches. Uh, they were all 15, 20 minute matches. I think the Scorpio was a much longer match. And, uh, by the time we got done with that last match. And at that point I knew I had to make my decision. Like, was I going to, because again, Paul had told me if, if you, if you don't throw the belt down, we'll become, we'll stay with the NWA and we'll figure out something down the road. So at that moment, when I stop and I look up and I say, here we go, dad, uh, nothing was scripted. Paul gave me no lines of what to say. Uh, I had not pre-planned out any, any comments. It was, you know, literally done on the fly, uh, because, and, and that's, if you listen, if you watch closely, you know, I, I couldn't, uh, no, nor would I ever go out remembering a bunch of things to say uh, because then it, it becomes very canned and contrived. So if you listen, I'm, I'm spitting out the names that I can't come up with on the top of my head, and then the fans in the audience start throwing additional names, and I start incorporating those names into the into the, uh, into the promo. And uh, I looked over, if you watch my eyeballs or my head, you'll see, I look over, uh, Corluza was sitting at a table, which would be camera left. Um, 
towards the hard camera front side of the ring, my, my left on stage on in the ring. And he's sitting at the table with, uh, uh Todd Gordon and Bob Ortiz are, are ring announcer. And, uh, as I'm looking at looking around, I'm cutting this promo. I look over and I make eye contact with Corluzo, and all I could see was him on Mike Tenay's show telling people not to book me that I would steal their money and rip them off, and then him following me around all day, including outside the the crapper stall, uh, with that contract. And that's when, like, in my head, it popped, and I that's why I say, "Here we go, Dad." You know, because at least like this was my dad used to always tell me when I was a kid, and I never knew what the hell he's talking about. My dad's really weird. He says weird stuff. He would say, uh, you can walk with your feet on the ground like everybody else. You can soar with the eagles. Uh, and I never knew what he meant by that. At that moment when I said that, I finally understood what my dad was telling me all those years. And, and you know, the promo, thank God, worked. Because, you know, it's easy to look back in hindsight now and, 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 and thank God it did work. But what if it hadn't worked? Um, you know, it could have quite seriously damaged my career. Uh, the one, my biggest concern with the whole angle was I didn't want any of those people I mentioned or anybody that had ever carried that belt, uh, to think that I was, you know, shitting on their legacy. Cause I sort of, I respect every one of those guys, uh, flair included. Um, you know, so for me, that was the only linchpin to me. The only thing that really caused me any concern over the angles, I didn't want any of those people to think, uh, you know, that I was in any way demeaning their accomplishments or, or their status with that belt. Cause I certainly didn't mean that. And that's why I threw the line in, you know, the, the company that died RIP seven years ago. Um, and that, that was, that was thrown in there by design. Uh, not that I'd pre-planned it, but I, I, threw, I, I wanted them to understand that there was something in my head that was breaking this NWA from the NWA that, that they had represented. Definitely, and that was one of those awesome, memorable promos that you'll never forget, and it went perfect with Paul Heyman's vision of ECW, if you think about it, because, you know, it's kind of a renegade thing to do. You know, you guys are rebels, you're throwing down the belt, you're creating your own belt, kind of creating your own separate promotion away from the NWA, so it went perfectly. But you mentioned uh, Ric Flair for a second there, and obviously the triple threat is kind of, uh, you know, kind of a knock on the horseman, because what you can do with four guys, hey, triple threat, I can do with three. So what, right. What, yeah, like, what's the legitimate um, beef with you and Ric Flair? Is there real heat there? Like, and, or, you know, did you really hate Flair? Or is that, you know, that part of the franchise character? Well, I, I never hated Flair. Uh, you know, to me, hate's a strong word. I think I think it gets thrown around way too cavalierly today. Um, uh, I never hated Flair. The truth be known, I got into the wrestling business because of a guy named Richard Flair. Uh, I was a huge Ric Flair mark. Uh, to me, he personified what a wrestler should be. Um uh, not the guy that goes out and gets a tackle and nose sells it and then slam each other and look at each other. And that was never wrestling to me. You go back and you watch Rare, uh, uh, Flair back in the day and you see the, the chain wrestling and the takedowns and the, and, and all the while he's doing this, he's holding his own, but he's also elevating the guy he's working with. It was an astounding art form that Rick had mastered like nobody before in the business. Uh, so where the original beef with me and Rick started was uh, that I had gone to Rick uh, as a huge Rick Flair mark and asked him in the dressing room, you know, look, if you could ever watch any of my matches and give me some pointers, I'd appreciate it. Because when you're young in this business, you know how to do the moves. I mean, that, you know, every, every kid that's ever gone to a, a wrestling school or been trained by a professional knows how to do the moves. The difference is 
when to do them, when not to do them. I think it's a big difference with the business today to, to back then, telling a story. And uh, so I, I just wanted Rick to give me some feedback. And I, I certainly didn't want him to tell me I was the greatest wrestler he ever saw. I wanted him to tell me where I was messing up. You know, if I screwed something up in tonight's match, please tell me what it was so that I can fix it. And uh, and I prefaced it when I went to him. I said, I, I, look, I, as a young kid, you're, you're sort of stepping on toes. I was brought into the business told, you know, keep your mouth shut and eyes and ears open. Uh, so to even go and ask something like that, to me, was like stepping over the boundary. And uh, I knew how inherently busy these guys were. You know, as a young kid, just sitting in the dressing room and watching, you know, every five minutes, when they come, Mr. Flair, Mr. Rick, they need you down at the uh, promo booth. They need you here. They need you out at the table. They need you up at the office. He was constantly running, you know, and that, and that lead position, it's a very uh, time-consuming position. So I prefaced it to him saying, uh, look, I, if you're too busy, I, I completely understand. But, you know, if you ever get a chance to watch some of my matches and give me some feedback, I'd really appreciate it. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said it would be an honor. And, you know, while my chest swelled up and everything, I was like, this is awesome. You know, Ric Flair's going to be giving me pointers. And uh, over the next several weeks, he did give me pointers, but they were very generic pointers, uh, you know, saying, you know, great fire tonight, great selling, uh, he didn't die, uh, uh, good comeback, you know, just really generic. Uh, there was no, like, hey, tonight when you did the arm drag spot, you know, you went into it a little bit weak or you came out of it a little bit weak or you set the heat up wrong, you know, coming out of the heat wrong or whatever. Uh, there was no specific points to it. And uh, I used to do a, a, a vault uh, cross body block where I would have, like I'd do it with Bobby Eaton all the time. Bobby would shoot me the turnbuckle, I would vault to the top turnbuckle off the run and turn around into a, a cross body block. And I used to do that every night. It was one of my staple moves when I was younger. And on that particular night, I intentionally did not do that move. And when I came back from the ring, I asked Rick, and, and he starts giving me the same you know, generic feedback. And I said, what about the cross body block? Now, if you freeze the story right there, I, I really had hoped that Rick would say, I didn't see a cross-body block. I mean, I, in my, every fiber of my being was hoping he would say that. And instead, he gave a long, pregnant pause, and he looked at me and he went, perfect, better than a steamboat. And when he said that, it's just like, like my heart just dropped. You know, it was just like, this guy's punking me out. You know, like, the, he knows how I idolize him. He knows how I look up to him. Uh, he knows that I'm eager to learn my craft and yet he's being this condescending. If he, all he ever had to do is say, I'm too busy, Shane, I, I will. You know, I tell kids that all the time to come and ask me now. They'll, they'll always say, okay, I'll watch it, and I do. Or I'll tell them, sorry, I'm getting ready for my match. I won't be able to tonight. But I never tell somebody I'll watch their match and then not do it. And uh, you know, so that's where the original beef started. And then from there, like, uh, suddenly this guy became like uh, just a mere mortal to me instead of an immortal that I had seen him as before. And over the next several years in NWA and then WCW, uh, I would see Rick do things that were strange, you know, like uh, after hours, you know, just uh, you know, all these stories are out there. The you know, the the, the birds and drinks, the uh, and and by the way, I could, you know, I hear, hear all the time from fans saying, "Oh, you know, you said Rick Flair didn't drink." I never said Rick Flair didn't drink. I said I would see him go into bars and pay the bartender to feed him burdens. Uh, now, how many drinks he'd have in a night, God knows. But I know on those nights when he looked like he was drinking a gallon of, of, of uh, melon balls, it, maybe a quarter of it was real melon balls, the rest of them were virgins. Um, 
you know, and so this is where it started, you know, all that heat started. And, you know, Rick and I have talked since. That was so long ago. And it's become such an inconsequential part of my career. Uh, I went out and forged a career in this industry in spite of that. Uh, you know, so I, I, I no longer even have hard feelings towards Rick. I, I mention it all the time. I get the tongue in cheek. Um, but uh, for me, it was when Reed Flair died. Uh, I was on a show a month or two later with Rick's uh, up in Ross Traver, PA, uh, for big time wrestling. And I saw him come walk into the building and, and uh, he came walking over to say hello. And I said, Rick, before he said anything, I started to tell you, uh, bro, I am so sorry to hear about Reed. And, uh, you know, all the stuff that we, in the overall scheme of the cosmos, what we do in this business is pretty unimportant. Uh, at the time when you're a young and dumb kid, you think it's very important. And at that moment, it probably is. Uh, but in the hindsight, uh, you know, in the overall scheme of the cosmos, losing a child uh, is one of the worst uh, 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 kicks in the ass that somebody can be be granted in this lifetime. I, I, I had a sister that died, so I watched what it did to my mother. And, uh, you know, so my my, my heart breaks for, uh, for Rick when I think about Reed. Uh, you know, or, or anybody losing a child. So, you know, my uh, as far as hating Rick, I don't hate Rick. I never hated Rick. Uh, did I dislike Rick at that time? Yeah. Uh, and I think I had a reason to at the time. Uh, but that is so long ago and so far behind. Like I said, I was able to forge a fairly uh, uh, successful career in spite of that. So a uh, long time ago and, and mostly forgotten. Absolutely. And recently on his podcast, I guess his co-host was kind of trying to rile him up a, a little bit uh, about it. He basically said, uh, you know, he doesn't want to go into any negative negativity about it, and he didn't really want to talk about it. So I guess he's kind of past it as well. Yeah, I, I guess I, you know, it's you know, they, I've heard comments over the years, and I'm sure he's heard comments about it over the years, and, and it's really easy on, on shows like this to digress into, you know, something. I said that that was. 1988, uh, 89, 90. I mean, my God, that was a, a lifetime ago. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, for, uh, do, I, do I think that Ric Flair and I will ever be best friends and, and sending Christmas cards to each other? I don't see that happening either, but uh, I, I've always had a world of respect for Rick's abilities. And, and I would hope that at some point that Rick would have acknowledged that, you know, I was able to have done something in the business as well. Uh, because when you get to this age, it really is, more about that, you know, it's, uh, I learned a long time ago that, you know, holding those grudges towards somebody, all that does is it sucks your energy and it's easy to let life, I went through a period of, you know, being divorced and everything else where, and the, the oxycontin, you know, where life seemed to suck pretty badly and, and it was all in perspective. Uh, you know, once I made the conscious decision to say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to allow my life to be let, live like this anymore and, and look for something else, uh, you know, something better. Uh, that, that, you know, and part of it was letting that stuff go, you know, all you're doing is sucking your own energy, you're not hurting them at all. And you're, you're sucking your energy. So who you're hurting and, uh, uh, you know, so like I said, water under the bridge to me and, and, uh, just a, a footnote in my, in my career. Absolutely. And then the triple threat, you know, kind of in homage in a weird way to the four horsemen, but with the triple threat, you were able to have so many, great partners to be a part of that triple threat. I mean, you look back at Benoit Malenko, Brian Lee, Candido. Probably my favorite one was uh, you and Bam Bam and Candido. So just awesome looking back at the triple threat. But do you have a favorite kind of incarnation of, of triple threat, or is each one special to you in its own way? 
Uh, well, I, uh, you know, to, to me, the, the original, uh, the original stands out in my head because it was at that time ECW was still just a fledgling company, and I knew that every great wrestling show I'd ever watched always had a strong stable of heels, whether it was the Four Horsemen or Humperdinck Stable or you know the uh, 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 the Freebirds. You know, there were always some group of of heels that just were able to run roughshod over the territory, and, and you know they they became so heinous. They had to love them because they were so good. And uh, I knew that if ECW was going to be successful, we would also have to have that kind of a stable. And the triple threat had been something that that name had kicked around in my head for some time. Uh, you know, back in that day, you know, it was everyone was, you know, holding four fingers up and, you know, it just seemed like a stable should have four people because it was so iconic, you know, with the original four horsemen and, and through their big incarnations of, of the horsemen. Uh, that's where the idea. And I took it to Paul with when Benoit Malenko came in, uh, because they, you know, they were so astounding in the ring. And I thought, you know, you put three pretty accomplished wrestlers that can go in the ring, and you make us heels, you allow us to run roughshod over this. You know, it's going to get, it's going to garner heat, and we'll give ECW that state that staple uh, uh, necessary heel stable that would uh, be able to be built around. And sadly, they left very shortly after. We, we started that. In fact, I don't believe that I've only ever seen two pictures of the three of us together. Strangely enough, uh, if there's more out there and anybody has them, please email them to me. Cause I've, I've only, there's a picture of the three of us outside of a television studio where we went to do an interview in Florida. And there's another one of us, I think at the ECW arena, uh, in the, in the locker room. And that's the only three, that's the only two pictures I've ever seen of the three of us together. Um, but you know, that one sticks out in my head because it was the beginning of the triple threat. And, you know, I've always been huge admirers and fans of, of Dean Malenko's and, and Chris Benoit's work. So, uh, you know, that sticks out in my head. And plus they were, they were dear friends, you know, so it was, a, it was a lot of fun for the short while that we did it. Then when they left, we had to come up with some other incarnations to try to put this thing together. Cause Paul loved the idea as did I. And that's where Brian Lee came in and then Candido. And then, uh, after Brian left, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow stepped into it, and it was just a perfect fit. The three of us, uh, as far as uh, time and all that, uh, me, Bam Bam, and Chris, I believe are, it's the incarnation that everybody believes, uh, they say the, the, the phrase triple threat. Uh, for me, it was a blessing because, you know, like I heard somebody say one time, uh, you can hardly say you're a genius if you fall into a pile of shit and come out with a, a, you know, a golden horseshoe that you find in there. Uh, you know, for me, standing next to Bam Bam Bigelow and Chris Candido, two guys that I believe are uh, the best big man and probably the best technician in the history of our business, uh, standing next to them as the mouthpiece was easy. You know, I could sell that all day long. So, but, but more than that, we weren't just coworkers. We were we were friends. We traveled together constantly. Uh, uh, I still, in my head, think of Bam Bam as my big brother and Chris as my little brother. Uh, in large part because uh, Bammer used to always call me. The only two people on the planet that called me my shoot name, Troy, were Bam Bam Bigelow and my mother. My ex-wife called me Shane. So, uh, you know, in fact, like, you know, you know Bill Townsend, uh, you know, asked me early on in this relationship. He said, uh, so what do you like to be called, Troy or Shane? And I said, well, might as well keep it standard and keep it simple. I said, everybody calls me Shane. So, you know, Troy's sort of become like a, like a, a, a forgotten name around my house. But, uh, Scott was, uh, and Chris both, they were, they were just damn good guys. And I think part of the reason they stand out 
in my memory so much, not just because we worked together and we had such great times together, but because when I, the time that I was in the business, I saw the worst of a lot of people, uh, the backstabbing and the politicking and, and all that. And Chris and Bam Bam were two guys that I knew always had my back and I had theirs. Um, it wasn't a question. You didn't think, did you or didn't you? You knew it. And uh, I will forever cherish the, the fact that I had that relationship with those guys. They were phenomenal workers and even better human beings. And it was even cool to throw it in there when you and Bam Bam, you know, you're together, then you split up and you have your feud, and then you have that big kind of, well, he wins a title from you and you can win it back in November to remember in 97, but that was like a huge kind of blow off to that feud, and then he kind of joins back with the triple threat. But thinking about November to remember 97 in Pittsburgh, it was a huge, huge crowd. I think it was possibly the biggest crowd in ECW history, and I believe that's, you know, a testament to you and what you were able to do and it kind of being your hometown there. Do you remember that match, you know, very fondly as I do? Because I just remember loving that match and loving the finish. Yeah, I, I, I have very fond memories and vivid memories of that match. Uh, uh, Bam Bam and I knew that, you know, that this was going to be a make-or-break night for ECW. And frankly, in hindsight, it was a make-night for ECW. It was the first time in ECW history that a legit 5,000, uh, I think it was 5,186 people, um, we turned about 3,500 people away. We had no idea. See, in those days, we had no way of gauging who was going to show up at the door. You know, we could gauge to a certain degree because of pre-sales on, say, Ticketmaster or even at the venue. Uh, but there was no guarantee. And when we showed up at the building, uh, when I showed up at the building that night, it was only about five, six miles from my house, uh, there was a line of people about six people wide that wrapped all the way around the outside of the venue and then up the stairs and all the way across the parking lot. It was a I'd never seen a crowd like that anywhere near that for ECW. And uh, had we known that, you know, we could have, you know, the building at that college campus had like a, a, another building that we could have put like a, a closed circuit television or something. But had we done that, it would have been close to 9,000 people uh, for that, for that show. Cause we turned legitimately 3,500 away. Um, but when we got there, Sabu had brought his Winnebago. I don't know if it was a Winnebago brand, but, you know, big, long, driving camper. And uh, because I was promoter of the show, co-promoter, uh, me and Cody Michaels were promoting it. Every few minutes, somebody else was walking up and, you know, from the contestant, saying we need more ice, saying we need hot dogs, saying we're out of this, saying we need that, saying this person needs to talk to you. And I couldn't focus on that match. I was doing too many other things. So Cody Michaels said to me, you go talk to Bam Bam, take care of business. I'll hold the fort down here. So Sabu, like I said, had driven his camper down, and he said to us, you know, go out and use my camper. He said, nobody will bother you in there. So we went out to the camper, me and Bam Bam, and they pulled all the curtains shut and everything to, to, to maintain the kayfabe. And uh, when we got into the camper, we were in there. When I went out to the camper, it was probably around – I don't know, two hours before bell time. And, you know, the crowd was coming into the building, but, you know, you know, up to this point, ECW had never done anything more than, I think, 2,800 people. And we went out into the camp where we were out there for several hours, you know, going over the match and you know, what we were going to do. And uh, we came back in. When I came to the curtain, Paul Hammond came over to me like a kid on Christmas morning, gave me a great big bear hug and picked me up and then kissed me on the cheek. I said, well, what was that for? I said, I love you too. What's that for? And he pulled me by the hand up the stairs to the balcony overlooking the arena. 
because everything else was curtained off. And he pulled the curtain back, and I looked out, and all I can describe it as is it looked like a bowl full of ants quivering. Uh, and they were throwing, you know, bouncing uh, beach balls all around. And uh, he said, uh, we just officially went over 5,000 people. Now, that, as the promoter of the building, that concerned me because I knew the, the building capacity was like 4796 or something well under that. He said, don't worry, I've already paid off the fire marshal. So, uh, you know, we were good as far as the show went. And I knew that the crowd was going to be uh, – what was nice about Pittsburgh, or, I don't know if it was nice, but it was refreshing for me, was even though I was a heel in, in the ECW, in Pittsburgh I was a babyface. And I didn't work any differently. It was just that I'm the hometown guy. And I knew that it was going to be a lot of fun that night in front of that many people. So the template that we had for the match was Flair Vader from 1990. Um, you know, where uh, Vader just beat the snot out of Flair for however long before Flair beat him. And that was the, the, the template that we used for it. But if, if you go back and watch that match again, Keep in mind that I'm 253 pounds of solid rock muscle at this time. And Bam Bam is trimming down, but he's still well over 400 pounds. And the building was excessively hot that night. There was no air conditioning in that building. Um, even though it was November, it was you know 5,000 plus people in there, plus how many staff and television lights. I was going to have to use those old hot TV stanchions. Uh, it was extremely hot in the building and stifling hot, like a thick, wet air, wet, hot air. And uh, Bam Bam, for about the first 15-plus minutes of that match, throws me around like a rag doll. At the, about the 15- or 17-minute mark, give or take, he presses me over his head and throws me out into the hallway where I, you know, I fall into security. And he goes back and he leans on the top rope and he's facing, staring right into the hard cam. He's barely sweating, and he's barely breathing hard. And then if you look at me, I'm sucking wind like a, <laughs> like a, like a COPD patient on his last breath. You know, it's, uh, Bam Bam was an extraordinary athlete, uh, just astounding. And, and, and I never could understand how a guy that size could move that well and be that fit cardiovascularly that, you know, he wasn't sucking wind. When he leans on that top rope facing our camera, you can see he's... <sighs> He's breathing heavy, but normal heavy, you know, not sucking wind or anything. And, and that just always impressed me, you know, that, uh, you know, that Scott was that agile, that quick, that big, uh, that powerful, uh, really a complete package. You hear that a lot in wrestling, but Scott really could do it all and talk. You know, he was, uh, he was a, quite a wrestler. And for that match that night, we had, you know, obviously we had the, the hometown built into because, you know, the, you know, the age-old story of subterfuge, you know, stabbing somebody in the back, and Bam Bam had done that with Rick Rude's urging. And, uh, you know, so there were a lot of parameters going into this. And at that point, it was just a question of us going out and going out and executing, not failing to execute. Uh, the follow-up to that, that match, though, is that I ended up in the hospital for, I think, three days afterwards, and Bam Bam was in the hospital, I think, for five. He was pissing blood. Um so it was a pretty physical match that took its toll on both of us. And, uh, you know, one of those matches that stands out fondly in my memory because not of the aftermath, but uh, of the buildup to it, the success of it as a pay-per-view. Uh, that was the first time that as a company, ECW got the, you know, we had the feeling that we could make it, that this could work. 
and we were able to, we were successful on pay. Our pay-per-view buy rates were coming up. They were decent. Uh, we were doing very well in the house shows. And so everything for ECW's business prospects at that point were looking very, very good. Definitely. And it was towards that, you know, hot point in the business where business was booming. And that kind of led to a great long title reign for you. And you held it for, I'm not even sure how long, but it was quite a, a lengthy title reign you had. And then basically ended or culminated with a really good feud with Taz. What is, you know, is there any heat with you and Taz or is that kind of all the work? I feel like you two guys never really got along well. No, no, Taz and I get along great. I, I, we had a lot of respect for each other. Um, the angle with Taz started off uh, a year before, uh, but better than a year before. Uh, and Paul was angry with Taz, something about stipends, uh, daily stipends, uh, receipts or something. Uh, uh, Taz, you know, Paul was paying us a stipend. And in return, like any company, when the company pays you a stipend, you hand the receipts for your hotel, your rental car, you know, food, whatever. And uh, so the company pays you, and then they get to write the receipt off. Well, I guess Taz wanted to do both. And there were some arguments with him all about uh, who got the receipts. And Paul was really upset that Taz wouldn't give him his receipts. And that's where the idea of the angle started. And Paul had told me from the beginning that this would be the first job that Taz does. You know, he'd been unbeatable up to that point. So the uh, the whole buildup of me backpedaling from him for over a year and, you know, having him pin me for the TV title in under three minutes and all of that, those are things that I would have never done had had I thought that Taz was going over. Because as a heel, you have to be able to maintain your heat. If you don't maintain the heat, then you can't draw money. So the week of the pay-per-view, now this is after the whole year and a half long build-up. The, year, the, the week of the pay-per-view, Paul called me, I think it was like on Sunday or Monday, before the pay-per-view, and said that he had an idea to give him a call. Well, I knew Paul well enough to know what he meant by that. You know, that he tried him with some kind of swerve. Uh, coincidentally, at this point, I was still I was owed about seventy-seven thousand dollars by the company. So the only leverage I had was with the belt, and I knew that if I had dropped that belt, my leverage was going to never see the money. So, you know, right away, the, all the uh, wrestler paranoia instincts start kicking in. And I, I tried calling Paul Tuesday, nothing. Wednesday, nothing. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, nothing. Uh, fr- to Friday, I was supposed to fly there on Saturday. So Friday night, I called him up 10 o'clock to last. I called him all day. But at 10 o'clock, uh, about quarter to 10, I called him out of the message. Uh, I'm going to wait until 11 o'clock. If I don't hear from by 11 o'clock, I'm heading to the bar and I'm getting drunk, and I will not be in Orlando. So I left, I waited, right on the nose, I waited until 11 o'clock, and right at 11 o'clock I walked out the door, I went to the bar, and I proceeded to get rip-roaring drunk, not planning to head to Orlando. So I get to the bar, and about a half an hour, 45 minutes after I get to the bar, Paul calls, I answer the phone, I hear his voice, I'm up on him. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not a guy that okay, I don't say something like uh, you know, until eleven o'clock, but if it's eleven twenty-five, then it's okay. You know, it's uh, you know, we're all grown adults, and we're all supposed to be professionals. So 
11 o'clock in my head means 11 o'clock. And so I kept hanging up on him five or six, seven times in a row. Finally, the last time he calls and he said, uh, can we have a, a discussion before you hang up on me again? And I said, Paul, there's nothing to talk about. I said, I've called you all week long about this supposed idea you have. That, you know, you've never returned my call until suddenly an hour after the deadline. And, you know, I told you I'm getting drunk and I'm, I'm here now in the process of getting drunk and I'm not going to be in Orlando tomorrow. So make whatever plan I, I'm doing. It's a courtesy of you to make whatever plans you have to, to, to fix it. And he kept me on the phone for seven hours until daylight. And, uh, you know, going on and on and on about how he would never screw me out of my money. He would never lie to me. On and on and on. This whole shebang. So I get on a plane and I fly to Orlando. I get off the plane, my uh, driver, uh, the head of merchandise sales, Damien Sandy, passed away last year, sadly, uh, picked me up, and we always stayed at the Marriott downtown Orlando. So he picked me up, and we get, you know, come out of the Orlando airport. There's that seven-mile drive between the airport and downtown, and uh, we're getting ready to get to go to the tool booth to get on that uh, road to go downtown, and... Well, I'm trying to trying to hook my seatbelt as I'm talking. Um, and uh, Paul calls. Now, I remember he's kept me on the phone for seven hours about telling me about what a great guy he is and how honest and sincere he is and on and on and on. I pick up the phone as we're getting on the turnpike on the toll road, and he says, uh, hey, I've got a question uh, for you. Uh, is all this drama about you doing a job or is it about you doing a job in Taz? Now, keep in mind, I'm the guy that allowed and suggested the old McGillicuddy theory. So I hardly have trouble going to job. And if I do have trouble going to job, I certainly was pretty pissed poor hiding it because I got beat an awful lot in ECW, even though I was champion. And uh, so when he said that, it just really, really pissed me off. And I asked him where he was staying. He said, the Marriott at the airport. I looked over, and we're, we're going by, we're on the toll road, but we're going by the Marriott on the other side of the highway. So I grabbed the steering wheel of the car right before the toll booth and spun the car around. I was in the passenger seat and spun the car around to go back to the Marriott. I walked in, uh, uh, Bubba Ray, Francine, Tommy, uh, Jim Molno, I think there uh, were a whole bunch of the ECW guys hanging out in the lobby. And I said, what room is Paul in? And Bubba told me, and I went up door was propped open and the, you know, the dead pulled over. So I walked in, he's in the shower. So I sit down in the chair in the corner of the room waiting for him to come out of the shower and he comes walking out of the shower. Trust me when I tell you, if you ever wanted to go blind, this was the time you wanted to go blind. Paul asked <laughs> coming out of the shower. He came out of the shower and he saw me sitting there and he about choked on his tongue and he said, uh, I just want to start by saying I'm sorry. And, uh, I said, look, Paul, I said, I, I don't know what kind of game you're playing. And it's just one of this, this, this kind of terse relationship this whole weekend. The next day, we come to the building for the pay-per-view. Uh, uh, in my head, I'm thinking the whole time, I know I'm being screwed. And uh, of all things, of all things I deserve from ECW, that wasn't one of them. You know, I been very vocal about the other companies. Uh, I had put ECW on the pedestal, uh, meaning I burned bridges with the other companies, I thought. 
and uh, you know, and really have killed myself physically in the ring. I, three days after I had that major elbow surgery, I'm in the ring in a cast, getting German suplexed by Taz. My doctor, when he saw that, about had a fit. He said, what the hell's wrong with you? you know, and, uh, that was the stuff that I would do for ACW. Not that I deserve a medal for that. Far from it, but nor do I deserve to get screwed or lied to for it. And uh, so when it came time to get to the building that day, I was sitting in the car, and I, I physically, my body wouldn't allow itself to get out of the car. Like every time I'd start, my, my, it would just stop. You know, so I sat in the car for what seemed like a couple hours. And I remember Axel, the, the story full, full circle, Axel coming up to the window, uh, Chris and Tammy came up to the car, Francine, I think, did. I could tell I'll be in, I'll be in, I'll be in. And uh, last minute, I thought, you know what? I know I'm getting screwed. I started the car and I drove out. I went to PGI Fridays down the road and I was drinking a beer. And uh, Bam Bam called. He goes, what are you doing? And I said, I'm down the road here. I'm having a beer. Why? He said, uh, are you coming to the show today? I said, I don't know you, Scott. He goes, well, Troy, you, see, you don't really want to screw the fans, do you? And when he said that, it popped in my head. I was like, you know, he's right. You know, it's not the fans' fault that Paul was an idiot and, and lied. Uh, and so I, I started into this thing in my head, fighting myself, of like, should I or shouldn't I? And uh, every time I think of the fans, I, I couldn't do it. I thought, you know, and I'm getting screwed. I, I, the fans that have paid for this paper, you deserve to get the show that they paid for. And so I went in, and Taz and I proceeded to tear the house down. Uh, we had an incredible match, but as far as your initial question, Taz and I get along fine. We don't talk very often. Uh, he's busy, and I'm pretty busy. Uh, but when we do talk, you know, we can talk for hours on the phone, and uh, we've always come along very well. Uh, Taz has always been uh, great to work with. Uh, I love working off those guys that can, you know, like Taz do the throws, or you know, like, like pit bulls who do the press, and you know, manhandle you around like Bam Bam or whatever. I love working with guys like that. Taz was uh, very, very good at it. You guys definitely had, you know, quite a few good matches, and obviously the one we beat you for the title was very good. And thinking back about what you said about Paul Heyman and, you know, him being infamous for lying and being infamous for, you know, not really telling everyone the exact truth or maybe stretching the truth a bit, what are some of the, the money issues? Because I know that was a huge issue with you with him. Was it? you know, the case where it was like a tremendous amount of money that he owed you and it was just getting too much, you just didn't trust him anymore? Well, it was, uh, yes, you know, D, all the above. Uh, you know, Paul owed me an awful lot of money, um, over $144,000 whenever I left. Uh, like I said earlier, he had lied to me, uh, which, you know, of all things, in our business, the one thing about ECW was we were the counter-revolutionaries. We were the, you know, the counter-culture. And if nothing else, it was us against the world. And when you got into that dressing room, didn't mean you were in love with everybody in the dressing room, but if somebody out there would attack me, everybody in that dressing room, even the ones that didn't like me, were out there defending me. Excuse me, Paul included. So when it became an issue of now I can't trust what you're telling me, uh, to me that was a uh, that that suddenly made ECW just like WCW, just like WWF. Now that's the same bullshit you get in those companies, and this was always supposed to be different here. And 
you know, it was, uh, it didn't sit well with me, you know, because I didn't bust my ass for those seven years that I was there to build another WWF, another WCW, um, business-wise. So the, the money that, you know, I was owed, uh, but it was more than just that, 144000 about 77000 of was money that I was owed from, from services performed. The other half of it was for money that I had spent out of my pocket promoting shows in Pittsburgh, flying talent, uh, like for instance, do an on-sale, uh, uh, pre-sale, uh, you know, uh, that I'd fly, say, like the uh, Eliminators in or the Triple Threat in and get a limousine and we drive around from this ticket venue to that ticket venue to this ticket venue to that ticket venue. We'd spend the day just looping around Pittsburgh selling tickets. And, uh, you know, it wasn't cheap to do that, to buy hotel rooms. Like in the Triple Threads case, you had to buy three hotel rooms, three plane tickets, uh, you know, three stipends for food and drinks and everything. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, when I would do that, you know, for the first, at least the initial two or three years that I was promoting, you know, I would get reimbursed for that. And then towards the end, when these checks all started bouncing, suddenly we were falling behind in money and doing so pretty quickly. Uh, and, uh, you know, Paul had always made up on it. He'd fall behind three, fall behind one, one time twice, about $12,000. And uh, when that happened, he let me take, uh, I did a three shot in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Johnstown. And on Sunday, we did Johnstown shot. He let me keep getting cock tired and get it for like 17000 bucks or something. And he said, uh, just keep it all. And there's too much here. He goes, let's keep it all. That's interest. And, you know, so when I fell behind, it, initially, it didn't cause that big a concern because Paul had fallen behind before and always made up on it. But when it started growing, you know, 40000 50000 60000 now it's, that's a lot of money for anybody. And, uh, you know, it became you know, a, a pretty big issue. And you know, in hindsight, I'm sure that Paul couldn't afford to pay the money back. And so it was easier for him to just, you know, knowing that if he lied to me, just nothing at some point I'd walk, uh, than it was to try to make good on the money. And, you know, in the, in the final analysis, I don't think anybody in ECW deserved that kind of treatment because, like I said, in this part of this uh, interview, uh, what, ha- what we did in ECW was done with our bodies. There was a loyalty there to Paul, and quite frankly, from Paul towards us. Like, none of us deserved to, to, to be lied to like that and, uh, and to be manipulated like that, like the other companies would do. And then treated like it was no big deal. Uh, to me, it was a massive deal because ECW was always a different place. And certainly when the behavior was the same as the WCW and WWF, that's why I decided, well, if I'm going to be treated like this, uh, I might as well go someplace and I'm going to make real money and not be lied to and, and be given bounce checks to. Hmm. Do you know of any other wrestlers that may have, pers- you know, because there's obviously stories out there of other wrestlers besides yourself being owed money. Are there any stories out there from any of the guys that, you know, they were going to pursue and try to get that money? Uh, well, I mean, you know, Paul had filed for bankruptcy right after. One of the last conversations I had with Paul was in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, the Poughkeepsie building was attached, to, probably still is, attached to an ice arena. So he asked me to go for a walk with him, and we did. We walked across over to the ice arena, and I remember kids playing hockey you know, as we were talking. 
And he said, you know, well, why don't you trust me? Why do you think I'm lying to you? And why are you going to lie? I said, oh, it's, you know, 77,000 bucks. I mean, you're looking at 70s at that point. I said, uh, that's a lot of money, Paul. This isn't, you know, 10 or 12,000 is a lot of money, but this considerably more than that. And so that probably has something to do with it. The exact quote more was, you have, I swear to you on my father's eyesight, we'll get every penny that you're owed. Now, in hindsight, after he filed for the bankruptcy, you know, my attorneys were easily able to get the paperwork. When he had told me that, sworn his father's eyesight, he'd already initiated the bankruptcy. So, you know, to me, that's, that, you know, that's, you know, Paul, Vince McMahon will lie to your face and smile. Uh, you know, WCW officials would lie to your face and smile. And the difference was you were getting big paychecks in those places back then. Um, so to me, as much as I did, I never wanted to leave ECW uh, in the first place or certainly in the end. Uh, so when it became to me the same as all the other places, just bounce checks on top of it, came, that made it a very easy decision for me. You know, and, and we, uh, right. And we all know, you know, what happened with Paul, and Paul showed up on uh, WWE TV, and, you know, that's kind of how ECW, a lot of people found out at the end that it was gone, but, you know, you were gone by that point, and we think about the fact that WWE and Paul E and ECW all being such different entities, but your history within the WWE is actually, it's very interesting because you start all the way back at the beginning of your career, as an enhancement guy on some mid-'80s uh, superstar shows, all the way through the rumors of coming back when, you, uh, when the Radicals, uh, Eddie Guerrero and Di Malenko and Perry Saturn, jumped over to the WWF. And, you know, it's just kind of funny that we're so thinking of ECW when we think of the franchise. But when you think about your early time in the business and being an enhancement guy looking back, what are some of your fond memories of that time and such an interesting era in the business? Well, you know, again, to me, it's more about the relationships. Uh, you know, like, my, you know, my initial time in, in WWF, uh, when Dominic Lucci was sending me and Mick Foley and, you know, a band full of guys up there to, to do jobs and get beaten up. Uh, uh, you know, as crazy as it sounds, I look back on that very fondly now because it was, uh, even though it's a very demeaning position, you, know, you walk out in front of 16, 17, 18,000 people, and they know because they don't know who you are. You're getting your ass kicked and you know, get you know, thrown around. You know, as soon as you walk to that curtain, you're a piece of shit. You're gonna get your ass, you know, yelling and stuff like that. It's it, hard to handle. You keep your boys and you go out and you do your job. You have to do. Um, but to me, it wasn't about that. It was about you know, I think more of that time of being in the van. You know, me and Mick and all the guys. You know, cutting up these young kids to get to make it in the business, hungry to make it in the business. Uh, and jumping forward to 1990 when I went there, uh, when I left uh, uh, WCW to go to WWF, uh, you know, I was just a mid-card guy then. I you know, wasn't being pushed in the mood or anything. Uh, but Vince had conceived of the idea. He wanted to see if he could create a legitimate rock star, a Bon Jovi-style rock star. Well, I played bass when I was younger, and I sang, and... Uh, that seemed pretty interesting to me. And at that point, everything Vince had turned, turned to gold. The dust turned to gold. So, Jimmy Hart had written three songs uh, to start the CD, to start the, the album. And uh, they were okay songs. They, were, you know, they weren't 
anything earth shattering, but nor did they they weren't real American. You know, it was uh, decent sounding music. And he had written uh, three versions of each: uh, a pop version, a rock version, and a metal version. And uh, came to Pittsburgh Civic Arena, and uh, we went up. I went backstage with them and uh, went back into one of the dressing rooms, and he pulled out a you know an old boom box and you know, put a cassette in of music and handed me a sheet of the lyrics and I started singing for him. And uh, Jimmy Hart decided that my voice is best tuned to the uh, to the rock version. And uh, the idea was conceived. And, you know, Shane Douglas is going to be a Bon Jovi-style rock star. And uh, they even went so far to make the outfit. You remember at that time I was wearing the denim and white leather uh, Western-style uh, uh, conchos Silverlets and things like that on the uh, uh, amulets I mean, uh, on the uh, uh, outfit. That was to be the outfit that would be, you know, the, uh, the character's uh, look. And uh, right before we were to go into the studio to record those songs, my father had contracted uh, late stage uh, emphysema, uh, stage four emphysema, and uh, lived alone. And uh, you know, about COPD and on oxygen, they can't live alone. Uh, sometimes they forget full uh, an open flame, their oxygen can explode, you know, an explosion. Uh, so it fell on me as his only son to go home to take care of him. And I did. I went and had a long talk with Vince Fury. I believe it was either Fury or Buffalo. Uh, and, you know, Vince told me that the door was always open to come back, and I was welcome back anytime. And uh, that's what ended that first run. And then the last run, uh, I've gone up with a lot of the same thoughts in my head. Like, I have fond memories of my time there in the 80s, job guy. Uh, again, back to the relationships. I have fond memories of being there in 1990. You know, the guys that I've worked with, uh, a lot, and uh, guys like that barbarian. And, you know, they all work hard. They've worked their butts off with me, and, and uh, you know, I've learned from them. And I, I really had a fond memories of the 1990 visit there, and uh, about a year or so. And when I went back in 95, 96, the difference this time was uh, people that I thought were friends of mine, like Sean Michaels and, and Scott Hall, who uh, I spent extensive time with both of them on the road uh, on the road past. Uh, so this time I'm going back to a place I've got fond memories of, and friends of mine are in good positions. So I had no reason to, to have a guard up in the first place uh, to let down. Uh, I just I, I was excited about going back and uh, you know, thinking that you know they can take the franchise character and you know work the WWE WWF magic on it. You know, we should go create a pretty compelling character. And uh, you know, of course, they say the, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, history without a doubt. And I you know I hate to keep harping on different, you know, segmented feuds that uh, have come up throughout the years, but it's seemingly even bigger than, I think, the Ric Flair feud is that people want to pit the click against Shane Douglas, and obviously the click ran pretty much, you know, quote, the WWF in that mid-'90s period. But, you know, there's a couple stories that you've, you've told about, you know, things that kind of set you just, like, in a, in a questionable mind frame, you know, with these guys. Like, what are they doing to not only just this company, but, like, what are they wanting to do you know, in terms of this business and letting the, the business grow, whether it's holding a guy back or, or you know, yeah. maybe uh, kind of, you know, 
maybe giving him the old, uh, you know, the old shaft in terms of getting booked by the territory. But, you know, is there one instance in, you know, particular that could really be the pinpoint where you were just like, I don't know what happened to this, this company. I don't know what happened to these guys running the show, but it just ain't going in the right direction. Yeah, uh, very, very vividly, I remember. Uh, we were in Montreal. Um, I had been, you know, for the first few months I was with WWF that last time, I was uh, mainly uh, a vignette character. I hadn't wrestled but on one or two shows. Uh, I think I did a run-in on one of the shows in Dayton, Ohio, not Dayton, uh, Akron, Ohio. Uh, just things like that, but I wasn't yet on the road full-time. And the first week I was on the road full time was a hellacious road trip from uh, like Pittsburgh to Toronto, Toronto to uh, Saint Clair or something like that up in uh, Wisconsin. It's really, really long road trips, and we ended up in Montreal. Uh, me, uh, just incredible, Pete you Flacco know, and uh, Christian Tammy traveling together. And uh, we were staying at the Days Inn at the Montreal airport. And when I got to the building, this is like I said, the first week or so, I'm on the road this whole time. And uh, the building's no longer there, the Molson Center. So we walk into the Molson Center. And as you walk down the this, like, sloping ramp that went down to the right, down, sloping downward. And as you walk down this ramp, there were two dress rooms about 15, 20 feet apart. On the right hand, on the left hand side, uh, I went to walk into one of those rooms, and I think Deshaun grabbed him by the gloves and I, he dressed with us. And uh, so I followed them down to the bottom of the ramp where the Zamboni machine was parked, and they walked around the Zamboni machine on the other side of the door. This is where the Montreal Canadiens dressed. So I walk in there and I sit down again. Keep in mind that these are guys, and I've done, you know, in 1990 when we were in WWF, I was in WWF. Me, Sean, Marty, and uh, Dustin, we call ourselves the Four Amigos, where you saw one of us, you saw all four of us. Uh, you know, we traveled together, we trained together, we ate and drank together, literally did everything together. And uh, so I walked down and I opened my bag up and I'm getting dressed, and right in front of me, uh, Sean starts asking Kevin Nash what he's going to do that night. Now, the preface to this whole story is that Montreal had been down, down in a big way, the houses. And uh, Carl Houlet, Pierre at the time, uh, was uh, from Montreal. He had worked his butt off to get the house up. And uh, he had, the house was up considerably. It wasn't packed, it wasn't sold out, but I think it dropped from like 68000 to 160000 And the main event of the match that night was the local guy, him, Pierre, versus uh, Kevin Nash for the belt. And, uh, you know, the whole the whole rest of the story is taken in context of what was said during this whole back and forth. Uh, so Kevin, uh, Sean said, Kevin, what are you going to do tonight? And Kevin said, well, you know, Vince was kind of a hot finish. So you can have a return. And uh, Sean said, fuck what Vince wants. He said, uh, would you work with the champion? Do you put the champion over clean? And Kevin said, yeah, I'm well, bad different. He said, oh, that's not different. He said, you're the champion. Why should this be super two over team? Like this kind of con. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but this kind of context. And, uh, you know, so finally, uh, Kevin, well, I don't know, Sean said, like, pantomime to him. He said, 
said, like, but, but gave the motion like to the jackknife. He went jackknife, and he did the, 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 the motion. And then he put his fingers come out, one, two, three. And uh, just then the door opens up. Carl comes walking in, talking to Kevin. And Sean turns around and says, hey, Carl, I, I was just talking shit on a second ago. Hey, Carl, you know, buddy, he walks around. Carl's blind, I believe, on the right side. And uh, he walks around his blind side, but he's leaving. But then he turns, like, walks behind him, and he's standing right behind him. And, you know, again, this is all happening six feet in front of me. And uh, Kevin says, uh, Carl says to Kevin, uh, so what do you want to do my Kevin? And Kevin said, well, I, I don't know. And Sean is standing behind Carl's back on his blind side. And he's, he's not saying it. He's not making any noise. He's pantomiming uh, jackknife one with his fingers, one, two, three. But it's like pissed off look on his face. And uh, Kevin finally says, well, I, I don't know, I'm staying there. Maybe jackknife one, two, three. And Carl goes, no, no, we can't do a clean finish. Can't do a return off a clean finish. And uh, so this, you know, the story would take an hour to tell the whole story, but Sean then goes up to the other dressing room and where all the boys are and the agents, and he says, uh, as Carl comes walking in to talk to the agents about the finish that Vince himself wanted, and uh, he says, everybody, my name's Sean Michaels. You may know me as the Heartbreak Kid. This is uh, Carl Lillet. You may know him as Pierre. Pierre thinks he's too big of a star to put our champion over tonight, and Carl goes, oh, Sean, what are you talking about? I didn't say that, and he's you know, like, they get like, you know, the song gets a little bit lippy, but only was in a pull of the part. And, uh, of course, that's what happened. And everybody pulls them apart. And, uh, uh, you know, so there's a lot of tension in the building that night. So we were all done. Me, Chris, Tammy, and PJ were done before the main event. So we leave and go back to the Montreal uh, days in at the airport. And, our modern, modern PJ's room was right next to the front desk. And Chris and Tammy's were the next room. So as we're walking into the room, the click comes walking in behind us. And they tap me on the shoulder and they say, hey, we're down in the room, whatever. Uh, we ordered pizza and beer. We come on down, we want to talk to you. So I left them, went, put my bag in the room, went down to the room they were in. And, uh, they were sitting there talking, talking pretty badly about Carl, uh, Pierre. And uh, they asked me what I thought of that. And it's purely from a business standpoint, you can't have a return. If, if I beat you clean with my finish, it's pretty hard to come back and say, well, yeah, but, you know, you have to have some reason to have a, come, uh, a return. And I said that. I said, well, I can see his point. You know, it's hard to have a return off the same finish. And Sean said, see, I told you guys, Shane understands the business. You have to understand, Shane, this is the whole wrestling federation. We do things differently here. And I think it's an alternate universe of physics or something. And uh, so I remember Kevin picking me. They were, they were talking shit on Carl. Kevin picking the phone up and saying he was going to call Vince and have him, and have him fire Carl. And either Sean, I can't remember this day. I never never remember. But it was either Sean or Kevin Stott, Paul. He walked over and hung the phone. I like, pushed the button down on the phone. I said, no, let's think this through. 
and they sort of kick in the rub, and the five of them sort of like say, oh, we should do this, we should do that, we should do that, we should do this. And finally, one of them said, I got it. Call Victor and tell him to starve Carl for three years. And I remember, like, the feeling of, like, I felt like I was watching a woman being raped. Uh, I just wanted to get out of that room and go take a shower. Like, it was disgusting to me. And, you know, if you go back and draw, you know, what happened with Pierre's career after that there, uh, you know, I, don't, I can't tell you, I left shortly after that. I wasn't there that long, so... Uh, Kevin last week had told me that they sent Carl down to the, uh, uh, to the, like, what do they call it, the farm league, whatever, Memphis, I think he said. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm guessing that they probably were successful in getting what they wanted with Carl. Uh, all because Carl wanted to do what Vince McMahon himself had said he wanted. Um, that kind of stuff. You know, they wielded great authority there. And contrary to, to, to recent statements, that how much, how can we have done anything? Well, you know, ask Dustin Rhodes, that ask Carl, that ask me, that ask Olivia if he would have been triggered at that time. That and ask Vince that, if he'd be honest with you, because Vince almost lost his ass if it hadn't been for the attitude error that saved him coming out of that time frame. Uh, Vince would have been Vince would have been belly up years before. Yeah, and a, a group that was as thick as thieves, you know, with you guys. You're talking about your friends when you were there in, in 1990, but, you know, the click really becoming the guys that did almost let the ship just kind of fall right off the side of the cliff because there was just no, you know, there was just no thought to what was going on because they're either working with each other in top spots and the houses, yes, you guys are making a lot of towns, but not necessarily the big numbers that, you know, maybe they were doing five, six, seven years before. But the funny thing about you is you're so perfectly, you know, in tune with what that intercontinental division was back in the mid to early 90s where you put it on the best worker on the roster. And he's a guy, especially you as a heel, who could carry that belt for years. And you think about what they did with Jeff Jarrett not soon after you departed. And they only had, you know, you won the intercontinental title, but it was for a cup of coffee. And whether, you know, you want to believe the stories of, uh, you know, somebody getting jumped by, you know, 10 Marines, and maybe it was one or two guys, but, uh, you know, maybe somebody not wanting to do the job kind of hurt your run with the Intercontinental Champion, because like I said, the character, the worker, you yourself at that point were such a hot name coming off ECW, it it seemed like that's printed money right there. Well, I I agree. I mean, thanks for the comments, but uh, if you listen to Shawn Michaels' comments, Sam will tell you that, you know, uh, Shane Douglas wasn't very good. Um, I'll tell you up front, I think Shawn Michaels is probably the most gifted worker our business has ever seen, uh, which always confounded me as to why he would resort to the type of games and politics that he did. Uh, I can't answer that. I guess my Shawn can, but, uh, you know, because I, I would, in a heartbeat, tell you that Shawn Michaels is a better in-ring performer than me. But I would also tell you in that next breath, that I was a much better promo than, than Shane was, than Sean was. Uh, and, and in the business in those days, it was a package. So if Sean, if Shane Douglas was able to have great matches with Sabu, Taz, Tommy Dreamer, Raven, Sandman, Terry Funk, Bam Bam Bigelow, Pitbull Number Two, uh, but Sean couldn't have a great match with me, then you know maybe you need to ask the question: Then why? You know, it's, uh, 
one thing about Rick Flair, again, it brings conversation back full circle. Uh, uh, Rick Flair would manage the talent. They'd, they'd put him in the room with a broomstick. He'd work his ass off and get the broomstick over, and he'd succeed at it. Um, and I know Sean always had, Sean told me himself that he had this big running uh, uh, competition in his head with, with Rick Flair. He's the better worker than Rick Flair. Uh, well, you know, based on Sean's comments and based on the history, their histories in the ring, I guess that Sean is vicariously saying that Rick was a much better worker because Rick would go out there with an underneath guy, a job guy, and get them over before he takes them. Um, Sean goes out and tries to make the comment that, you know, I'm not a very good worker. Well, you know, it's not a very good worker. I'm not saying I'm the best worker in the world, far from it, but I'm certainly proficient at what I did. And uh, if not, I, I doubt I'd have been around for as long as I've been around in the business and had achieved the things that I did in ECW. The difference was in ECW was we, we couldn't have an off night. An off night could have killed ECW. So every single night, it didn't matter. Like Sam and I, you know, we get along great now. But back in the day, we were just oil and water. We didn't get along. And uh, two different kinds of people. But if you put us in the ring that night, he was busting his ass to get me over, and I was busting my ass to get him over. And I, that was the difference. I'd never seen that anywhere except ECW, although I'd heard stories about that how the business had always been, from Dominic and Bruno and you know, the older guys. Uh, and I'd never seen it the business at the time I was in there, except for ECW. So uh, you know, maybe there's a reason that ECW got over as well as it did. There's a lot of factors in that, but you know, I believe a big part of it is the fact that, you know, we were first and foremost a family, you know, a family of misfits, but we were a family. Definitely, and something that the WWF at that point definitely was not, and even WCW, there was a lot of backstage politics and and all that nonsense when you were there, and you kind of, you know, you left the ECW, obviously you went to WWF and you came back to ECW, and then you leave ECW, obviously for the issues we kind of went on before, and then you end up back at WCW, were you kind of uh, shell-shocked when you got to WCW with kind of like with Russo being there and all this kind of backstage politics, or did you kind of expect that when you went into WCW that second time? No, I, I sort of didn't expect it. Uh, uh, again, keep, keep in mind, for you know, several years prior, I had been pretty, pretty vociferous uh, on the microphone and publicly about both WCW and WWF. Uh, and, and and believe that I had burned bridges with both companies. So, uh, you know, I, I did. Never, I never contemplated that there was a possibility for a job at other place after I left DCW. Uh, just your, uh, again, back to Mike Tomei. Mike Tomei had called me and said, uh, I had Dustin Rhodes on my show a couple days ago. Did you hear it? And same thing, asked you to go back and listen to the archive. I did. And Dusty Rhodes made a comment. Uh, somebody called in and asked about Shane Douglas, and he said Shane Douglas is the Ric Flair of his generation. And I had been sort of on the outs with Dusty for a couple of years prior to that, so I called Dusty to thank him. And uh, you know, I said I heard your comments, Dusty. I said I just want to say that, you know, thank you very much. That's really kind of you to say. And he said, Well, I mean, it, you know, we talked for several minutes, so and parties for. 30, 40 minutes, and he finally said, uh, uh, do you mind if we're having a booking meeting 
what he might not bring the name of the book you're reading. I say, well, it's complicated. It's neat. But, uh, you know, if you want to do what you want to do. And uh, he said, well, we'll see how it goes. And he called me the next day and said, uh, go to give Eric Bischoff a call. I think he's interested in talking to you. And uh, I did. You know, the rest uh, came to pass. Uh, it, it wasn't by any means a, a marriage made in heaven, and it nor was it a comfortable move for me. That was the one move in my career that I made based solely on economics. Uh, I was so deep in red ink coming out of ECW that I had to make a, a good, solid living just to get my nose up the waterline because of ECW. So, uh, you know, people people can say a lot about Eric Bischoff, and I've heard a lot of people make a lot of negative comments about him. Uh, I'll comment, you know, you know, about his booking. I, his booking is not my kind of booking. It's not the kind of stuff that I look for in wrestling. But that said, uh, I will always be appreciative and thankful to Eric Bischoff for offering me the contract he did when he did uh, because it saved my financial life. So, you know, it's pretty hard to, uh, to argue with that. So, Yeah, definitely. And, and when you were at WCW at that point as well, they kind of gave you, gave you some good opponents and, and some good stuff. I mean, the booking was a little wishy-washy because then you had the whole New Blood versus the Millionaires Club and you kind of feuded with Flair again. And, you know, yeah. you had the Russo and Bischoff contingent and all that stuff. Was it any, you know, was there any problem with you and Flair, you know, working with each other at that point? No. Uh, in fact, when I first saw with WCW for that last run, I knew that I was going to be pretty busy uh, or figured I'd be pretty busy for three years of that contract. So I took my wife on a two, I think it was like a two-week uh, Caribbean cruise, and, you know, and made her, uh, you know, arrangements for me to go back in Florida to hang out in Florida for a week. Uh, I know I was going to be pretty busy and tied up for the next several years. Uh, as luck would have it, they were in. Uh, once we got back in Florida, I think on Saturday or Sunday, they were in Jacksonville, Florida, live for that Monday night for Nitro. And I decided that I would get myself there. You know, I was already in Florida, so I just, you know, took the rental car and drove to Jacksonville. And uh, uh, I wanted to go and, you know, make a good showing. Walk in and say hello to everybody in the dressing room. Let everybody know that I'm excited to be coming to work there, that kind of thing. Plus, a lot of my friends were. Sammy was there at the time. Uh, Mikey Whitworth was there at the time. Chastity was there at the time. And there were... You know, a handful of ECW talents and, you know, guys like Sting that I've always been good friends with. And, uh, you know, so I was looking forward to getting there. And when I walked in that day, uh, you know, I'm standing there saying hello to everybody. And uh, everybody goes dead quiet. Yeah, I mean, literally you can hear a pin drop. And I, I knew Rick Flair had walked in right behind me. So I turn around and sure enough, there's Rick standing behind me. And, uh <laughs> Rick is an incredible, uh, 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 incredibly prescient and, uh, uh, you know, keen on paying attention to what's going around him type of guy. He, uh, he looked around and saw everybody looking at us, and he said, uh, Franchise, how are you, sir? And he put his hand out. And we shook hands, and 
I said to him, you know, before I, you know, I wouldn't let his hand go, I pulled him back in towards me, and I said, uh, Rick, I think you and I should talk. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, once for like 15 minutes, you get settled in. And uh, so I went down to catering and said hello to you know, a bunch of the guys down there for you know, probably 30, 40, 50 minutes. I was done. I had a little one, you know, down there getting coffee and saying hello to everybody. And went back up to Rick's room, and uh, when I knocked on the door, he came over the door and opened the door. He, was, he had one boot on, under tights, and a T-shirt, and uh, was lacing the other boot. And he said, uh, uh, I walked in, I said, you know, you and I should, you know, several things to talk about. I said, first of all, you know, we need to clear the air between us. And, uh, to be honest, you're not, you and I are never going to be best of friends. Uh, you made comments, I made comments. Uh, I'm not going to take them back. And he tried to take it back. And I said, I don't, I don't want you to do that, Rick. I know you're not serious about it. And uh, likewise, I'm not going to take my comments back. I said, but that's exactly why I believe this angle can work. At this time, WCW, who had just come out, I don't know how long it was, but it was within months or so of, uh, of them having had that 93-week run against WWF. And I was certain that with this angle, Ric Flair versus the franchise, that with the believability to the fans and how much the fans had known of this was a shoot, that the two of us together, if we worked together, could help turn the tides back in WCW's favor. And he agreed with that. And I asked him, I said, I'm looking behind, I'm going to ask you, are you man enough to uphold your end of the bargain? And he said, yes, sir, I believe I am. And I shook his hand at that point. I said, I'm going to hold you to that. So we left. And in my head, this is water to the bridge at this point. And then if you look at how that angle played out, it was always this person running in, that person running in. You know, David Flair out there was a mask hoodie on and then fish off our, I mean, we're still out there with a mask. It just became a, 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 a spectacle. You know, it had nothing to do with the match between the two of us. It was more about all this other, you know, dog and pony show, like Raven would say. And, uh, and I think it really undermined the, the huge disservice to WCW. But I still maintain that that angle is executed properly uh, and showcase property by WCW would have helped turn things back in, in WCW's favor. But you know, that, that, we'll never know that side of it because that, that's the side that happened. Uh, what happened was the uh, the politics and stuff that Rick had sworn wouldn't happen and, and, and began to happen almost immediately. And TNA years later, uh, Vince Russo told me that almost from the very first day, Rick started politicking. So, uh, you know, you only go by what you what you hear as you know being facts and, and truths by certain people, and put it together with what you saw happening in the buildings and in the arenas. And uh, you know, so to me, WCW deserved to get to get a return on their investment in both Shane Douglas and Ric Flair. And to do that, that would have meant that the two of us would have had to have been willing to work together. And then gone out and worked hard together. And I believe, had we done that again with my comments about Rick earlier, I believe Rick's part of the greatest pure performer our business has ever had. Uh, had the two of us gone out there and done what we were supposed to do, I believe we could have put on some outstanding matches for WCW and given them some return on that investment. Totally, totally agree with that. And 
obviously, you know, politics played a, a big role in that. And eventually you kind of were in that uh, upper mid-card role, but you kind of probably should have been elevated to the main event. But, you know, they gave you the, the United States Championship. You had a couple really good matches, I remember, with uh, Bill Lamont. If you, I guess the name yeah. at that point was uh, General Rection, you know, kind of a jokey Russo name. But, um, you know, you had some good matches with Booker T, and you even got to get in there with uh, your old buddy Terry Funk again. But then, but then they do this silly stuff like the Tory Wilson, Billy Kidman angle. Is that something that kind of annoyed you, kind of being more of a a wrestling purist? Is that kind of like, oh, God, a Viagra match or, you know, whatever the the silly matches were? Absolutely. I mean, you you know, you come from ECW, and where ECW was everything was reality-based. Believe We didn't have any dead men coming back to life. Shane Douglas wasn't the smartest man on the planet. Uh, You know, it was really believable realistic, real-world storylines. Maybe pushed to the extremes at points, but it was uh, realistic storylines nonetheless. And suddenly here I am at WCW, a company that I thought that I'd grown up watching is NWA and WCW as the wrestling company of the two companies. And suddenly here's a Viagra on the pool match. And here's, a, you know, all these stupid stipulations. And I remember that, you know, I'm usually a one- or two-shot guy. He doesn't take me long to shoot a promo. And the uh, vignette that, that, that uh, Tori and I did, sitting inside of the bed when I supposedly couldn't get it up, as if that'd be possible, the girl's beautiful story. Um, I remember having to shoot that multiple, multiple times. Because I need to start laughing in the middle of it. And at one point, I looked at Bruce and I said, this is the most absurd thing I've ever spoken about on camera. And this is ridiculous. And he's like, I don't know, I don't just... Just, you know, allow yourself to go there in these type of directions and stuff. And I remember thinking, like, this is this is a bad version of sports entertainment. This is, you know, it's, it's cornball, it's cheesy, it's uh, it's anything but wrestling. And suddenly, and, and just as a sidebar, you know, go back to, like, say, Macho Man and, and, and Elizabeth. Uh, everything... Very little was ever exposed on camera. All all was exposed on camera as far as the relationship between those two was that he seemed to be a real jackass to this beautiful, sweet little thing. And the rest of it was left to your own devices. So rather than give you every single word on the page or every single frame in the video, they would give you a snippet and then, and then allow your brain to fill in the rest. And it's like the old horror movies in the 1940s. You know, today if they would do Dracula, you know, you'd see Dracula ripping the throat out of the girl and blood and guts flying every place and, you know, gurgling. And, you know, they, they, it would get to the point where it would be so much, it would, be, it would almost get comical uh, because it's just the violence has changed up so much. But back in the day, the black and white, you know, vampire movies, Dracula movies, you, know, you see Bella Lugosi moving towards the girl. He gets down close to her. He exposes the fangs about seven, eight inches from her throat. And then they cut to a, a shadow on the wall. And you hear muffled sounds behind that. And you see a shadow struggling. Uh, they left it. The producers of those movies, the director of those movies, left your brain to fill in all the blanks. And became an incredibly successful movie because of that. 
uh, I believe, even by today's standards, one would still sell well. Uh, the other would, you know, might do a decent box office, but would get, like, shit reviews because of being so cornball-y. Well, in fact, the wrestling with, you know, Macho Man and Elizabeth, and now, you know, 15, 20 years later, here's uh, Tory Wilson and Shane Douglas, you know, doing basically a Viagra commercial. And, hmm. you know, just, just ridiculous. You know, it says, hey, what does that have to do with Shane Douglas being a great wrestler or a shitty wrestler? Uh, what does it have to do with any of the storyline of whoever I was working with at that time, whether it's Bill DeMott or Ric Flair? has nothing to do with any of that. It's just window dressing. In other words, they're filling up time with window dressing. And, and the epitaph to that comment, guys, is I remember whenever I was off at the elbow surgery and doing the color commentary in ECW, the one takeaway I took, the one thing that stands out vividly in my mind about Paul with that show was every single week, and I was there for, I think, six to seven months full color commentary, Every single week, Paul would end up having to cut things out of the show that he didn't want to, that uh, he wanted desperately to keep into the show. But we had 40, I think at that time it was 48 minutes. We had down to 46 and 44. But at that time, we had 48 minutes. And that means 12, it didn't mean we had 48 minutes and three seconds or 47 minutes and 57 seconds. We had 48 minutes. And you had to be exactly on time. Those commercial cues had to be exactly timed up and cued. And so every single week, Paul would agonize over three frames of that, six frames of this, uh, until he'd get it down to the 48 minutes. So what was left was 48 minutes of assholes over tea kettle and excitement and action. Uh, I don't ever remember Paul having to fill the time. You know, saying, gosh, you know, let's, let's shoot Shane and Francine going to buy a commercial or whatever. Uh, there was always ample uh, amounts of footage. Um, you know, and, and, and there lies the difference. And you turn on Monday Night Raw this, you know, these days, and every single week you see it start off the 25, 30 minute in ring blah, blah, blah fest. And, you know, you're, I don't know, to me that seems insane. That an audience tuning in at nine o'clock to try to see wrestling, and they're going to make them wait at least thirty minutes to see any of that. And then when they do get it, it's going to be sports entertainment anyway. Um, okay, it's the same old ECW promos. The marquee outside says wrestling. Uh, the last I checked, Webster defines it as a sport. They don't define it as Shane Douglas on a microphone for thirty minutes, or Ric Flair or whoever. Um, you know, our business has gone egregiously off track to where it's supposed to be. And the product that it's supposed to be proffering up. Instead, we're getting what they call sports entertainment. And hey, it doesn't look like a sports man. It sure as hell doesn't look very entertaining. So, uh, I missed them if ever there was one. Hmm. Now, with you know, you said elbow surgeries, injury, and stuff. I was very curious with you because. Obviously, you worked hurt a lot, but how many injuries did you actually accumulate over your basically over 30-year career? Well, my my first 11 years, I was 11 years in the business before ECW. Uh, I had my my first break in wrestling in 1982. Wrestled my way to college on the weekends and at the time of the month. Uh, But the first 11 years, I had 
a few sprains, uh, maybe a couple stitches, and no real serious injuries. Um, in ECW, uh, I had, I forget the numbers at the time, but the seven years I was in ECW, it was multiple broken bones, uh, broken bones, multiple uh, uh, concussions, um, and, uh, you know, multiple surgeries. Uh, cumulatively, now in my career, I've had 29 broken bones, 18 surgeries, and 11 concussions. Uh, thankfully, most of those concussions were low-grade concussions, so they weren't you know, only uh, once or twice a guy have double vision and sensitivity to light and all that kind of stuff. But uh, you know, the business is, you know, no matter how you slice it, whether it's sports entertainment or, or ECW extreme wrestling, uh, the business is demanding physically. And very, very difficult to do, if not impossible to do, with no injury. I mean, looking at WWE right now, I mean, going to WrestleMania, they're decimated with injuries. Uh, you know, uh, Seth Rollins out with a complete knee explosion. Uh, John Cena out with shoulder surgery. This one's out because of that. That one's out because of this. Uh, you know, they're, they're really racking them up there. You know, so ours is an inherently dangerous business that the margin of error, we talked about this last week in the signing, uh, the margin of error for what we do is so slight that it astounds me that in my career, after the thousands of matches I've had and the tens of thousands of matches I've been on cards with, that, uh, that there hasn't been a lot more people more seriously injured. And I'm thankful for that, but it is astounding. These guys are going out night after night, match after match, doing these uh, incredibly risky stunts in the ring, and yet you know the injuries are relatively few and far between relative to the number of match- overall matches. So I think it's an astounding testament to uh, the professionalism and, and the preparation of the guys that are involved in the matches and women that are involved in the matches. Crazy the epidemic of injuries obviously you know you worked injured a lot and a lot of times you had that awesome cast or that uh really cool um elbow brace i mean not really cool but it, it physically just looks kind of cool like oh man like this guy has been through a war you know kind of thing so you've definitely been through it and injuries are definitely an epidemic in current wrestling and that's for sure and then there's the whole concussion thing which is a different story for a different day but Ooh. if i could um Rewind it back. You, you know, you were kind of talking about the early days, and I actually um, wanted to mention to you this guy, and I actually forgot to mention it to you. And it was all the way back during the uh, Dynamic Dudes days. And I just wanted to ask your opinions on uh, Johnny Ace, a.k.a. John Laurinaitis, because I wasn't sure if that's a guy that's high on your list or if a guy you kind of didn't uh, you know, didn't really appreciate your time with him or not. Well, my time was a great time. Johnny and I got along famously on the road, uh, you know, we, you know, we did all the debauchery that would be expected of young, two young guys on the road. Uh, we had a ton of fun and I, I think we got along quite well because at the time, and I think it's probably still the way, but less so today than it was then. Back then it was very rare for, uh, wrestlers to be educated, to have a formal education. And, uh, Johnny and I both had formal educations. <laughs> Johnny, <laughs> Johnny, in fact, had worked for Honeywell for several years before he broke into the business. Um, He's uh, the uh, younger brother of uh, Animal, uh, 
Joe Laurinaitis of the Road Warriors. And I think, you know, followed him to the business because he saw the enormous success his brother was having. So uh, I remember vividly, like it was yesterday, uh, you know, being in the car. Cause, you know, back then, that's all you did was drive places and wrestle, uh, you know, or in a van going to the airport from some hotel somewhere or whatever. I remember Johnny often saying, because Johnny, one thing about Johnny was he did not like the way the business was run. He hated it. And uh, he used to always say, you know, Shane, one day with our education, you and I are going to both be running this business. And when we're, when we're up there, we're going to do things differently. And uh, I can't speak any firsthand uh, stuff. I can, uh, you know, if half of the stories I heard are true, then it tells me that Johnny fell back into the let's do like they've always done a routine as opposed to the let's do it differently routine. Um, and that, that, you know, that's, I mean, there's, you know, there's a little bit of uh, maturity in that, you know, to, you know, somebody that's 20 years old, obviously it's a different gestalt than, say, somebody that's 50 years old. But uh, to have hated something so much when you were younger and now have a real chance to change that, uh, you know, and choose not to, uh, to me, that's, that, I think that, that says something in the person. So, uh it's one. It's one thing to bitch about something when you're younger, then be given the power to change it and, and choose not to or do. Uh, if you do, then you at least change. Even if you do it, if you try and you fail, you at least try. Uh, but it makes one end of that that spectrum uh, a little bit bullshit. You know, either it was your comments back then were bogus, or your actions today are bogus. One of the two, but. Uh, Look, I don't, I don't sit in Johnny's shoes. We're walking Johnny's shoes and sit in this seat. So I can't speak personally for, you know, what things he's done in each particular occasion. But I know that can talk to a lot of the wrestlers that have worked underneath him uh, and worked with him that way don't seem to speak very highly of Johnny. And, I, and maybe that's an unfair comparison because in that position, it's a thankless job anyway. Um you know, hard, hard to see that, that kind of job. But, again, I, I, I remember vividly the comments from Johnny about, you know, how things would be different when he and I were doing things. And, you know, he had that chance, and <clears throat> by all appearances, chose not to, to change things. So, a little bit hypocritical to his fact about. Definitely, and looking back at Dynamic Dudes, it's, you know, definitely a timepiece for that era, but it's kind of, you know, funny, you know, looking back at, like, you know, the franchise, what was once the Dynamic Dude with Skateboard, it's kind of funny, you know, just uh, reminiscing <laughs> and thinking about the past a little bit there. But uh, if I could wind it down a little bit here, he's given us so much great time, so many great stories. I got to ask, this is a personal question for me, and it's very curious. I mean, he's had the opportunity to team with Steamboat, which is just unbelievable, and, you know, he's had an epic feud with the Hollywood Blondes, and then you had so many epic matches in ECW against Terry Funk, Bam Bam Bigelow. We mentioned Sabu and Taz. Do you have a favorite match or maybe a couple of favorite matches that stick out, you know, in your whole career? Well, with Ryan and Steve, I was, to me, the, my time with Steamboat was all like a magical time because, A, he's just one of the nicest guys in wrestling ever, if not the nicest guy. He's just a true gentleman. And he was so tremendously professional. Uh, every night, 
you know, driving three or four hours to a building and three or four hours back to the building, he never criticized. He would never say, boy, Shane, you really screwed that up tonight. He would say, uh, hey, remember when you went the arm track spot and you did this and this before? What about if you had added this before that? And, you know, he's very, very positive the way he thought. Uh, very supportive and very unselfish. Uh, you know, initially we came up with the idea that we would take turns selling and making the comeback. Well, Rick knew that I was weak at making comebacks. I had to learn how to make a comeback. And so, you know, Rick, the constant professional, and make no mistakes about it, when we were first put together, for most of the time we were together, that team was made up of Ricky Steamboat, the star, and this young punk kid, Shane Douglas, as the sidekick. There was no comparison between the two characters. One was a verifiable star, and the other one was a star yet to be. Um, but in that kind of a hierarchy that the business is always predicated on, in that system, that would mean that Shane Douglas, out of respect, should do the selling and give the hot tag to Rick. Um, and I was fine with that. I mean, you know, Rick made phenomenal comebacks. And, you know, and I love selling. It was easy to sell. Uh, but Rick knew that to make me, you know, part of his job wasn't just to make the tag team successful. A part of his job was to make sure that Shane Douglas learned his craft. And to do that, he had to make sure that Shane Douglas learned how to do a proper comeback. So, you know, we'd be, be, we'd be in a match with God knows where, and it'd be my turn that night to sell, and he would take some bump and look over at me and cover his mouth and say, got your partner, and he'd start into the cell, meaning that I had to make the comeback that night. That, you know, that's, by today's standards, such an unselfish thing to do, because you can't imagine a store in any other company. Say, imagine a John Cena in WCW today being put with some lower mid-card kid and said, okay, I'll let them beat me up and we'll give you the shot as the superstar. It wouldn't happen. Hmm. That was the kind of guy Ricky Steamboat was. So the time with him was phenomenal. But if there's one match that stands out between the two of them with, with us and, and the Blondes, it was in 93 during the blizzard. Uh, <clears throat> we were... Scheduled to work, booked to work in, a, I forget the name of the town, some little town three or four hours north of Atlanta, up in the mountains of Georgia. And, you know, the, the whole, you know, for a week in advance, you know, all the weathermen across the country are talking about this monster storm, you know, depending on which way it tracked. Well, I flew from Pittsburgh that morning. The, 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 the uh, blizzard was supposed to later that day. And I flew down to Atlanta, I get a rental car. Steamboat lived in, Tarl uh, in Charlotte, a little bit north of Charlotte. So he just drove his uh, Mercedes, uh, Series 9, I think it was Mercedes, uh, down from Charlotte. And I drove up in a rental car from, uh, from Atlanta. And, you know, three or four hours, I would always pull over and get gas and stretch my legs and go to the bathroom and get coffee, whatever. And, uh, Every place I stopped on the way up, the store shelves are completely empty. Like, the stores have been raided. Uh, you know, like, the apocalypse was upon us. And, and I'm, I remember laughing to myself, thinking, like, what's, what's wrong with these people? There's no way in the world Atlanta, Georgia, is going to get four feet of snow. So it's not going to happen. And uh, we get to the building that night. We get to the building that night. 
and uh, it's one of those buildings where you dressed in the basement, and you know, the ground level was like a half a floor above you. So the windows in the dressing room like work at the roof, like where the roof of the wall met, and you know, went out to the parking lot. So about intermission, like sometime right before intermission, uh, I start noticing cars leaving, you know, cars starting and lights going see the cars pulling out. I remember thinking to myself, why are they hitting already so that bad? And I had been I had been outside since before the show started. Now, before I go further, there wasn't a, one flake of snow on the ground when we went into the building for that show. So in intermission, I went outside to call home to ask my wife at the time if the blizzard had started yet. And when I went outside, there were four or five inches of snow already on the ground uh, by intermission. It was freezing cold, and it was this big, white, this big, wet snowflakes falling and just accumulating. So, uh, you know, me and Ricky and Brian and Steve, we're not sure if the, show, the rest of the show's going to be canceled or what. Uh, our agent, I think it's Grizzly uh, Smith, came down and he said, no, oh, you guys are on last, you have to go this long, and that kind of thing. So, me and Ricky and Brian and Steve go to the ring start the match, and during the match, standing on the apron, I count 27 people in the audience left. It had been sold out about an hour before that. And so I was kidding Ricky saying, boy, you talk about chilling the town. They put us on top of it. Uh, the show empties out by intermission when we're on top. <laughs> uh, and we ended up getting snowed in the mountains of Georgia for, for about a week. We're completely snowbound, and they, they end up getting close to four feet of snow. And uh, we were snowed completely in. Me and Ricky had stuck in a little hotel up in the mountains of Georgia. Um, <laughs> just uh, one of those things that you can't imagine happening, and they've been, you know, maybe got a story to tell it. But uh, as far as uh, in ECW, there there are a ton of matches there. You know, people always ask me, what's your favorite match? And I was blessed to have some amazing talent to work with. So. You know, each one of those angles to match the storylines had some memory of fondness to me. You know, working with uh, uh, Terry Funk was, for me, an incredible learning experience. Because when I first gone to uh, ECW and knew they were going to be making me a quote-unquote heel, in my naivete, I just thought being a heel was the opposite of being a babyface. And it's quite more than that. Uh, and thankfully, I had gone to work with Terry Funk at that key moment in my in that in that switchover, and uh, you know, for a pretty extended period, for probably three or four months, I worked with uh, Terry Funk at the beginning, and really learned a, a million percent about being a heel. Um, you know, I credit Terry Funk with that. Uh, you know, then from there I worked at you know short angles with Tommy Dreamer early in his career. Uh, you know, and then just bounced around from different you know, name guys in, in ECW and you know, just a really fun time in my memory of wrestling. You know, when I think of my career, all my memories either come from the Steamboat era or uh, as far as matches, either come from the Steamboat era or the ECW era. So that speaks about something about the company and the people I was with at that time. Oh, without a doubt. And 
You know, I, could, I swear, and this is just a, uh, an independent commentary here, I really could listen to you talk all day. And this has just <laughs> been so absolutely amazing to get this uh, career retrospective from you. But the hardest question that I love to save for the end is when you close the book on everything. And obviously, I saw you last weekend. Shane Douglas is still getting in the ring, folks. And he's still franchising people left and right. But when you close the book on your career for good, what do you think people are going to say about Shane Douglas? And what do you think the perception of Shane Douglas and what he brought to professional wrestling is going to be? Well, I think the Ric Flair fans are going to say I was the worst wrestler in the history of wrestling. Uh, no, seriously, I, I don't know. I, I would hope that fans, uh, uh, you know, would be willing to say that they, you know, look back and had a lot of fond memories of entertaining matches that I was in. Uh, you know, to me, I mean, you know, getting to the point now where you can look back and see that after all these years, that some match or some moment, whether it's a belt throw down or something else in their career, that that is an iconic moment in, in some fans' head somewhere that sticks out for some reason. Maybe they sat down for the first time with dad or grandpa to watch wrestling uh, or whatever, uh, the, the nostalgia factor coming into play. So, you know, for me, the fact that I've been able to even have a career this long, it's astounding. I remember vividly, Mick and I, you know, all we ever wanted to do was have a match, just have a match and a real card and then, and we'd be happy forever. Uh, you know, and then both of us have gone on to be, you know, fairly successful in our industry. So I think a lot of that's through our training and, and the fact that we also were both very hungry. Uh, but I always tell the fans, if nobody watches, it's all for naught. And if nobody cares, it's all for naught. So the fact that anybody still cares or remembers Shane Douglas from ECW, be it the belt throw down or the Gary Wolf broken that gang or whatever, uh, that means that somebody, uh, that means that somebody took the time to watch it. They care about it, and to, to somebody like me, it's very humbling because uh, all I ever wanted to be at that age of my life was a, was a wrestler, and that fan involvement has allowed me, afforded me that career. And uh, you know, to the fans, I'll, I'll be eternally uh, thankful for that, and would never forget it. And, you know, the fans had offered that to me. That's, yeah, that is so well said, and I'll tell you what, you know, and I, the first time that anybody asked me why should I watch ECW, I said, well, because you're going to get a chance to see the franchise, Shane Douglas, and when somebody asked me what's going to be the benchmark episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling, I'm going to tell them to go right back to what I said about ECW, and that is check out Shane Douglas, but if anybody wants to go and check you out, whether it be on social media or at an upcoming show, where can they see the franchise and reach out and touch one of the greatest of all time. Well, I, the, uh, my website is uh, uh, the franchise Shane Douglas. Uh, oh wait, uh, franchise fan site. I'm always doing emails and stuff. My franchise fan site uh, dot com. Uh, booking uh, can be done through Shane Douglas Booking at gmail dot com. Uh, and I can be followed on Twitter at uh, hashtag FranchiseSB or uh, on Facebook at Shane the Franchise Douglas. Uh, and I think there's a couple of fan pages and stuff on there as well. But, uh, uh, you know, pretty easy to follow information along uh, with. And, again, the fact that anybody still cares after all these years, 
is, is humbling to me and, and, and very much appreciated. Without a doubt. And this 